John Podcast Network. You got a bit? Well, I have a bit. I mean, if I really wanted to do a bit and, you know, a small peek behind the curtain as we do here, this is a show that lacks artifice. We don't pretend to be, you know, much, you know. Everything we say is pretty much the truth all the time. Yep. All art, no office. Uh, yeah, 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 sure. Like I always say, every single episode. Yep, and it's, it's it still confuses me <laughs> to this day. But, you know, so uh, we are now, as of today, coming off of two nights um, where you and I both worked uh, the first day. Mm-hmm. And then the second day you worked. Mm-hmm. Um, and both those nights we stayed up until seven in the morning watching Japanese wrestling live from the other side of the world. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, with yep. frequent guest of the show, Brian Bierman. Hello, Brian. Hi, Brian. And um, so then we, you know, today we were, we were off. So yeah. we got Wrestle to. Wrestle Kingdom from we, New Japan Pro Wrestling. That is correct. And um, we got to come back at seven in the morning and crash out and sleep late. And so our schedule's a little off, we're kind of in wonky headspace, you know. But if I had the wherewithal to be like, oh, I'm going to spend some time thinking about this, my bit would be, like, to pick a song that vaguely, you know, has to do with, like, a show. Welcome to the show. And then I would, like, sing it um, obnoxiously and, like, not even really the melody, kind of, and it would be a mess. And then you could come in and counter-melodize with some other song that might not really have anything to do with anything uh-huh what's a good what's a good like welcome to the show song i feel like i'm for my brain is like trash i'm trying to immediately my head went oh, to I... stuff that i've been listening to lately which is too deep of a cut to be worthwhile yeah. which is um the electric uh, six electric six has a song put a little mustard on it that has like a refrain of it's showtime won't tell you what time it is now gonna tell you what time it is now because you know what time it is now it's showtime and gotcha. then it's got like a, a, yeah. a walking bass line. Yeah. Right. Yeah, uh, nobody knows that. <laughs> somebody does. Somebody does. That's cool. Lecture 6 are great. Yeah. I Me and Dick Valentine and nobody else. I've not listened to that album really, but uh, Naked Pigs and Your Mother is a great song. Oh, that's Overture a good one. or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Overture, hit the lights. This is it, the night of nights. And oh, what heights will hit. On with the show, this is it. Like, see, yeah. I would start singing that, and then you could sing something else under it, like, this is the song that doesn't end. Yeah. And we would just do that back and forth for about 14 minutes, and you would think it stopped because we moved on to another song, like, it's the big show. Yep. And then we'd and go we'd back it to back. it as a yeah. refrain, and you'd... Mm-hmm. You, the first time we did it, you'd be like, that's kind of clever. Like, that's fun. And then, like, the 14th time we did it, you're like, oh, my God. And at some point, you'd be like, Hunter, please stop singing Elton John's Your Song. Dear sweet Lord. The thing is, that structure is absolutely used in musicals. Yes. Having, it uh, is. you know, a refrain and a callback to the refrain. Yeah. And, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that this was just done inelegantly for It was you. done inelegantly. Yep. That's my issue. I'm not saying, like, you can never do this. But I'm saying you should do it well. Yeah. Fair. 
I'm critiquing this house as like, oh, well, the second floor collapsed on the first floor. And you're like, well, a lot of houses are only one level. And I'm like, motherfucker, that's not the point. The yeah. point is they built a two-story house and it wasn't good. Also, a lot of people drop in this movie. You mean drop? There's a lot of falling down physically. Oh, physically, through, yes. Through, yeah. through buildings and off of, things, off of stuff. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah, I mean, like, I mean, so there's intellectually, I think some of it can be explained, but... Some of it just, yeah, felt inelegant. Like, sure. really, really just, like, and tacky in a way that, you know, like, I understand um, camp. Yeah. I'm not an enemy to camp, you know. But, like, some of it was just, just like, oh, my God. And just, yeah, unsubtle as a bag of hammers. Like, so, for those of you just tuning in who maybe have not listened to our previous episode of February, you might want to go back and check that one out. You can do it after this. There's no preferred reading order, but, um, this is part two of love him with Lerman where Hunter and I talk about some Boz Lerman films, one, which Hunter didn't care for. And one, which I didn't care for our previous episode, Romeo and Juliet is the first in the little mini February series that we're doing. And, uh, this is the second um so. part two of a two-part series yeah um uh yeah romeo romeo plus juliet from 1996 yeah um was a film that i quite liked and would go to bat for uh and allison was like eh, it wasn't really ever my cup of tea we rewatched that so you can go listen to that episode yeah. and then this is the counter to that which was one that allison was like oh moulin rouge i like that and i was like oh man i hated that well you know for february we like kind of like to do a theme month and um yeah we figured why back not to back boz yeah Nope, I thought I had something. Yeah, Love and Lerman's good. Yeah, that's I know. We, that's I what know, you called it, and we're sticking with that. Yeah, how hard do you want me to work here? <laughs> so, uh, Love and Lerman, part two of two. Hello, excellent humans, and welcome to another Hate Watch, Great Watch. I'm your host, Allison Yukulis. With me, as always, is my co-host. I'm Hunter Bush. Uh, I got something for this. Uh... Call me the hunter. <laughs> that's my name. <laughs> It's a musical episode, so uh, I thought I'd introduce myself with a with a song. Hey, would you maybe like to introduce yourself with a song? Maybe there's a song or two that has your name. Oh my god. Uh, I don't remember all the words to Pixie's Allison, but that's the one I like. <laughs> I saw the face of Allison. 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 <laughs> Yeah, see? That's good. Actually, it's pretty good also because male and female vocal. Yeah. Yeah. Like the Pixies do. Uh, yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. So, hi. <laughs> uh, we're doing uh, 2001's Moulin Rouge. Moulin Rouge. Yeah, with an exclamation point. Oh, yeah. I th I think that's how it's styled. Style yeah. Okay. yeah. I'll remember that for, you know, posting on social media. That's cute. I mean, yeah. I'll, I'll have to double check, but I'm, I'm pretty sure. Um. Yeah, I mean it's it's a lot. It's it's a lot. It's a lot. Um, I think it's that they're making some swings here and trying to put a lot of separate elements together, and that can be a very dangerous prospect artistically. Yeah, I didn't remember a lot of this film. I remembered the less egregious, but more just like eye rolly things for me personally. Like uh -huh. the stuff that I watched on this watch i was like oh my god like i really disliked yeah i didn't remember it all and i was like boy i don't remember this yeah this stinks like nicole kidman coughing into her hanky and there's blood in it and i was just like that's like the lamest way to do anything after they had already more elegantly done it 
That I remember. That's how they show you have the consumption. Yeah, I know, but like she she got like the vapors up on her trapeze and then fell off. Yeah. That's enough to, like for a film, that's an, a film that's not about illness. It's, well, that's enough to telegraph that she's not well. And sure. She, but like this bitch is fainting like Jean Grey in this every 20 minutes. <laughs> All right, this is uh, this that might be kind of inside and weird. Um, in the X Men cartoon, specifically yeah. from the nineties, which is every... how I first knew the X Men, so right. I get that very much. In, uh, every in time head. anybody who had any kind of mental powers tried to use their powers, they would faint. Everybody. Now, you'd be like, oh well, sure, you know they're trying to you know override someone's will with their will. They're trying to move a giant whatever the fuck from here to there with their with their mind, just the powers of their mind. Like, sure, that might make you faint. But what you have to understand is the two characters we see using their their mental powers, telekinesis and telepathy, respectively, the most in that show are Professor Charles Xavier and Jean Grey, who are canonically within, I think the show probably, I think, touches on it, but definitely within the comics, two of the most powerful telepaths, uh, you know, and telekinetics. Yeah. Yeah, on Earth. They're two of the greatest ones. Yeah. So, like, for them to be, you know, every time, every time Xavier's like, because as a writer... You're like, yeah. go my X-Men, fight that guy who's, you know, like, spitting fire out of his nipples, you know. And then you got, like, these, you know, seven or eight X-Men with offensive powers. And you're just like, yeah, but can't you just, like, make him go to sleep? Because you have mental power. You can just make him be like, it's bedtime. I don't want to burn anything with my nipples now. I just want to take a nap. And then he would lay down and they could handcuff him and take him to mutant jail. I don't remember. Uh, yeah. They needed, like, a Ghostbusters containment unit. Yeah, I think it was one of those things where, like, the bad guys would just kind of, like, fuck off. They'd run away. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it was very um, Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. Sure, yeah. But anyway, like, yeah, so, you know, you'd, you'd always be like, well, why can't you just do it with your mental power? You're like, you can move stuff, and you can talk to people's brains, like, directly. So, like, you could just do, you could fix most of the things. And the way they would solve that was by having Professor Xavier be like, I'm going to try to contact his mind with my own mind oh no and he'd fall down and you know they'd be like well he wouldn't fall down he'd fall back in his chair yeah, yeah he's in a chair but they'd be like <laughs> oh the professor's passed out you know gene can you do it and she'd be like i don't know let me try to move this paper clip and she'd also pass out yeah and as a fan of the comics i was just like that's dumb <laughs> they're both way more powerful than that either be a better writer or you know don't write this so she does that nicole kidman does that a lot in this yeah She's like, and it's, and it, there's no cause and effect, even like the way Jean Grey used, used her power, passes out. Yeah. In this, it's like, it's been 20 minutes and Boz Lerman thinks to, seems to think maybe we'll have forgotten, which, no, fair, they, they, but. They try to make it seem like it's any time that she gets too agitated, she gets like pretty sweaty. Sure, and, sure. And faint. Sure, yeah. but it's not every time she gets agitated. Every time she faints, she's agitated, but not every time she gets agitated, she faints. That's, that's my problem. Is there are other okay. scenes where she's just as stressed and doing just as much physical nonsense and doing this and that and singing and dancing and balancing two lovers and yada, yada, yada. And then she's like, fine. But then like 20 minutes later, she has like, we had a conversation and oh, I feel the vapors and pass out. And then she'd wake up and cough a little blood into a handkerchief. And I was just like, oh, it's just, cr it's just cringily lame. It's just not well done. Again, yeah. like it's not a long, overly long movie. It's like two hours. Yeah. It's not crazy long or anything, but I... I do think maybe he was concerned about 
there being too much going on for you to remember these quote-unquote subtle details. Yeah. So he, it, the, the film is very well, repetitive with these things. Apparently they also had, like, wider aspirations as far as, like, showing more of that area and stuff. And they realized that they really need to strip it down and have it just be about the Moulin Rouge. Well, that, so... doesn't have anything, that doesn't explain constantly having her cough into a handkerchief every 20 minutes no i'm in, in a way that doesn't do anything sure again I'm, I'm i'm speculating here if they had a longer and more involved script then it probably would have been something a little bit more subtle because they had more going on i i, I guess maybe. um there's apparently supposed to be like more substance use in this than you actually see so it might have also muddled exactly what was happening Okay. But they do definitely address that she's sick extremely early on, earlier than I remembered them doing. I yeah. thought it was like a little... No, it's like her no, introduction. I, yeah. Like... yeah, no, yeah, it's it's like immediate, which and is that's, something that's I forgot about. That's the thing, is like, if you introduce a character and heavily imply that they're sick, I'm that's how I know them. Yeah. So you don't need to remind me as an audience member. Sure. You know, and then, like, the reveal at the end that she fucking dies of consumption, it would feel like kind of a surprise but also like earned like it's like oh yeah but this the whole time they're just like don't forget she's gonna die everybody hold on as if we didn't already know because of the structure of the movie itself it's you know we get text on screen 1900 paris 1900 mm -hmm. and then ewan mcgregor narration starts and he says like it was a year ago mm -hmm. and so I'm like okay so we're flashing back within this flat i'm like okay you know and then like a little bit into it i'm like oh we're gonna see the whole movie like the whole movie is a flashback with this bookend yeah so i'm like well he's clearly lovelorn yeah you know and he like straight up says like my he might even say like my dead ass girlfriend yeah or whatever and i'm like okay so we know she's gonna die and then you in, it's it's very like again like french noir film all in black and white like the woman i love is dead yeah it's <laughs> just like because the first shot he seems like maybe he's a frustrated writer yeah but then once the narration starts, like within the first five minutes, I think he's like, and my love who is dead or whatever. And I was like, okay, so she's going to die. And then we are introduced to her and her introduction implies that she's sick. So I'm like, okay, that's A and B. And I got, you know, it was B and then A, but I get it. And then, yeah, then we spend the whole movie being like, don't forget. Boz Lerman comes in and goes, oh, don't forget. I don't know what his accent is. Don't forget. She is going to die. And I'm like, I, I, okay. So I think... I saw something that made it seem like he was Australian or grew up in Australia, but let me just uh, check. I mean, really he quick. he directed the film Australia. I don't know what. It, I, yeah, I, Australian director. Well, it doesn't even matter. I just I I don't it doesn't matter where he's from. I don't know what his accent is because like you can be from somewhere and have. I mean, well, like last you know, you know, and then you famously have Tommy Wiseau who he's. I am from Kansas. This is how all Kansas people sound. And it's like mm, sure, that's exactly what Superman sounds like and his parents. Mm -hmm. Marta. Why did you say that name? <laughs> oh, oh, hi, Martha. <laughs> yeah, uh, who else? Who else has an inscrutable accent? Christopher Lambert. Oh, yeah, he does. He's, like, technically born in America, but raised in Belgium or something. But he sounds like this. He sounds like Peter Lorre. Yeah. Which is, like, confusing as shit. Yeah. He's like, I'm Ray. Also, I'm play. I have almost never, in any of my most famous roles, played anything close to the ethnicity of the character. Yeah. Yeah, he's he's the Highlander from oh, the I Scottish know. Highlands. I know. This is how we sound yeah. in Scotland. Yeah. Future episode, one hundred percent. Yeah, it's also got Sean Connery. Yep, as Ramirez. As, right. That's as, right. As I'm, a Spaniard. With I'm. A... I'm not a Spaniard. Yeah. I'm. I was raised in Egypt, and you're like, what? <laughs> 
All this is crazy. It's great. No, it's like it's like Schwarzenegger. Like they always yeah. have Schwarzenegger playing these all American dudes named like John Newton or whatever. He's like, yeah, yeah I'm John. I'm from here. <laughs> oh yeah, I'm from Delaware, born and raised. My whole family were from here. What? It's the home of tax free shopping. <laughs> and you're like, that is not that doesn't no, that doesn't track. Yeah. Come on. So I don't know. My point is, I don't know what Baz Luhrmann's accent is like. Sure. So I'll just ascribe anything I want to it until I learn, you know, better. He's Australian. Uh, sure. I prefer to do weird voices, as you might or might not be able to tell. <laughs> so yeah, I don't we know. We do get some weird voices in here. Oh man. <laughs> yeah, everybody's doing a little bit of something. Yeah. The worst offender would have to be uh, Richard Rocks Roxborough or Roxburg. Oh, Roxburg. Maybe that might be right. Yeah, as the Duke. Because when he shows up, he, he kind of sounds a bit like Q from the James Bond films. Just a tiny bit. Yes, I'm here to speak to Satine. I'm her courtesan. She's a courtesan, and I'm the Duke, and blah, 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 blah. And then, like, seriously, 40 minutes later in this movie, he's like, Yes, I'm going to... She's mine. I want her. And I'm like, what? Why are you... What? It's just, like, so crazy. He straight up does Nosferatu arms at one point. I love that. Yeah, I was like, this is a weird <laughs> turn. I kind of wish you were this big the whole time. Like He not only does that, but he's doing, like, some cape flapping yeah. and stuff during that number, and it's really funny. Yeah, <sighs> like, just make him a cartoonish villain. He kind of, I mean, He's is, not portrayed then... as any, like, that's the thing is, some of this movie is a straight up fucking cartoon. Yeah. And some of it is, like played straight yeah. or, or played like it's a drama mm. and it's like those two things don't balance well well so apparently in an interview what he was trying to do here was that shakespearean like comedy and tragedy blend sure. but he didn't isolate his characters i'm i'm now you know making some pronouncements he didn't isolate his characters so you have people at turns being very silly or being very serious as opposed to having a silly character and a serious character. Right. I think that's one of those things that, like, yeah, maybe makes it feel like you're tone switching too drastically. Yeah, and also, I mean, like, the editing on this movie... Is very frantic. It's not just frantic. <laughs> it's, it's, like, nonsensical. Mm-hmm. Like, at one point in the climax, John Leguizamo, who is dressed like a brown dick... <laughs> I mean, I know the reason, but, like, he's supposed to be a sitar, but he just it, he just looks like balls and a shaft running around. John Leguizamo, who in this is walking around on his knees like goddamn dwarf. Yeah. Uh, because he's playing a dwarf. He's doing a weird fucking kind of a f- f- like like a Elmer Fuddish yeah. voice, but like with a high, high nasal John Leguizamo kind of like, it's so fucking weird. And I couldn't ever get a handle on it, like what it was. Mm-hmm. And yeah, for half the movies running around on his knees... I wrote down the joke, Johnny Legs, more like Johnny Knees in this one. Mm, sure, yeah. It's just like, and I get it, like you're doing, um, not exactly pantomime, but like, uh, you know, big... Vaudeville? Yeah, there's, what's the, there's the famous French one with all the character archetypes that just slipped my mind now. Yeah, it's fine. Just write into the email. We'll give it to you at the end of the well, episode. apparently this takes pages from uh, La Boheme, La Traviata. And a version of the Orpheus and the Underworld story. And I don't know if any of those happen to be... Those are stories, though. That's not... Okay. That wasn't explained the, the, like, performances. No, I was not sure if what you were referencing had anything to do with any of those. No, there's a, there's a, a school of, like, you know, like the Grand Guignol 
was like a particular type of theater and you could put shows on. Grand Guignol was the, they, in Penny Dreadful. Okay. It's, it was all those, like, it was like horror, it was like horror movies, but for plays. Okay. And they would put on these like frightening, scary, you know, macabre, uh, plays, like short, short things. Sure. Um, I think, I think they're relatively short, but like. Okay. So you're saying it's like a French, like art style yeah. for plays that yeah. had a lot of like. It's famous for like inventing the archetypes for character. Okay. Like, I don't, I, that's the thing. It's all falling out of my head right now, um, for some reason. You know, this is where you get, like, certain types of characters. You know, the duplicitous doctor, and, like, this thing is that, you know, like, whatever. And the, it's kind of like that, because th- those are all characters that, like, the Shakespearean ar- archetypes that you were talking about before. Like, you have a character here that, you know, behaves in a certain way with a certain set of internal logic and rules. You can have them next to another character whose internal logic and rules don't match. But because they're inherently both sticking to their rules, it works. Sure. You know, even within the same play, you know, it doesn't matter. But But yeah, there were a lot of ideas here and they didn't all come together all that elegantly because there is some, yeah, difference in tone. You're um, trying to basically build like a a musical, what is it, like a a songbook, I guess, but out of existing songs. So it is a bit of a jukebox musical, but you're also trying to make it adhere to the rules of a musical yeah and so then that ends up feeling kind of more repetitive than necessary because it's songs that you already know that are then pretty obviously rehashed repeatedly yeah, yeah but like you and know then, I, i've since i mean since this this was a pretty early example of what would become a jukebox musical in film you know mm-hmm. and since then i've seen a, a fair share and yeah. this is like so repetitive again they use lines from elton john's your song yeah which is a great song beautiful song wonderful love song totally get why it is included here they use them so fucking much throughout the movie that i was like i kind of hate the song now thank you for ruining this for me and like i'm not just like well they use it too much like there's two scenes back to back where a character will sing most of that song to another character not most of it but like a chorus and a bridge to another character who will then just like say those things again immediately after that sing it to another character we're, we're doing the thing which I, again i think intellectually is interesting of showing that you can change perspective in a song it's kind of a commentary on art maybe of like oh you can use these lyrics to mean this and you can use the same lyrics to mean this and you can use them in this way like like performance imbuing different meaning and yeah and source. point of view yeah. represented like sure you know art being a mirror for your state of mind like you know since mm-hmm. art is isn't any one thing right you have right. initial creation but then what different people get out of it is going to be filtered through their yeah. expectations and experiences and, and current desires. mindset right and wants and needs yep. and so settle in listener because we're going to talk about death of the author so um yeah, I mean, like, that's kind of true. Like, yeah, yeah, you know, Elton John wrote your song, and he had specific goals in mind for writing it, and he was in a specific mind space, and, you know, he put such and such emotions into it, and his goal, you know, or his idea was that it meant this, and it would be interpreted thusly. But, theoretically, you could read whatever you want in it. Yeah. I mean, that's how you get, you know, people killing other people, because they're like, the Beatles told me to do it. Right. Which, I mean, that's a facetious argument that I'm sure. making because it is the most culturally aware argument. Like, it's the thing that most people know. Yeah. 
the Helter Skelter fucking thing, even though it's been disproven mm-hmm. as like a thing. The Beatles didn't influence anybody to kill anything, but like you know that as a like as a thing, like you never know when you put something out into the universe how it's going to be interpreted by certain you know by anybody. Sure. Well, we've had this discussion before where it's basically like the the better your argument is, the more valid your interpretation of a work is, and whether or not it jives with what the author intended, I think is kind of irrelevant because the thing exists. And it's in a, you know, microcosm yeah. of, you know, all the other works that have ever been in existence. And you can be pulling out whatever you want. It's the, you know, Moby Dick and the symbolism, but also Herman Melville hated symbolism. And, you know, yeah. is your English teacher wrong then? And it's like, well, I, I would argue that it depends on how good your defense of your position is. Right. And some people have bad takes yeah, and some and, people have good takes. And in Melville's case, it uh, that's an argument for, like, cultural osmosis and th- the prevalence of totemic ideas within oh, you know, so you're, you're human talk- consciousness. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like so the, you're talking why, about, like... The... Why did a man who hates symbolism so much write such an obviously symbolic story? Right. It's like, well, either he was lying about hating symbolism, which is possible. Sure, I don't know. I never met the man. He yeah. was dead long before I was born. But or it's that we have cultural memories and everything. Or, or just that, yeah, that that you know. that his supposedly symb- symbolismless quest of a man to kill a fish resonated for some reason in the very bones and soul of Melville enough that he wrote this, you know, pretty big book about it. Yeah, and it's like, well, why then? Right. Why would that right. resonate so? Right. If there's no meaning, then why is this thing now existing right. for you? Why right, is... right, because you didn't write a story yeah. about a man got up and he wrote a story, the mm-hmm. end, Yeah. done, signed Herman. Yeah. Like, you wrote this thing. Yeah. These are interesting concepts. Yeah. But I was specifically more talking about, like, having the, you know, characters with their slightly different viewpoints repeating, um, you know, how wonderful life is you're in the world. Mm-hmm. Right, that's the... Yes, their performances and their points of view, as we, you know, understand them, imbue that line with slightly different meaning. Mm-hmm. You know, like, Ewan McGregor means it to uh, Nicole Kidman because he's in love with her. Whereas I think when she says it immediately back to him in that scene, she's not in love with him. I think she just thinks he's interesting and new now. Because up until that point, she's a courtesan, so she's not allowed to love. And I think she's like, oh, this is somebody who doesn't, I'm not interested in them in the same way that I'm forced to be interested in everybody else. Okay. Life is now wonderful as opposed mm-hmm. to terrible. You know, whereas Ewan McGregor, like, knew love was important and knew he gave a big shit about love and went to be part of the bohemian scene to find love and to experience love because he wanted to be a writer and all this. He knew love was out there and he's just looking for it. Now he's found love. And he's like, ah, wonderful. Life is wonderful now because I found the object, you know, that fits in this space yeah this woman-shaped hole right. in my psyche right and then sure. um like after that the duke uh because she she put you know sort of distracts the duke by repeating this beautiful poem written mm-hmm. by elton john uh <laughs> you know and um oh bernie uh i forget his writing partner's name but um bernie something i believe bernie toppin toppin yep yeah it's all in my brain somewhere yeah. and then when the duke says it back to her he inherently doesn't mean it like, he inherently doesn't mean that, like, life is any better or worse. She's just a thing he wants. Yeah. He repeatedly refers to her as a thing, and, you know. Mm-hmm. And it's all that gender politics of, you yes. know, buying people. Yes, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, like, that's, there's a lot in yeah. here, inherently. Um, 
But like those three interpretations, back to back to back, are are conceptually interesting. Now, in practice, me having to hear somebody like repeating this constantly throughout like eight to ten minutes, I was just like, I get it. Like, please stop. You're not doing it in a way that's fun to hear. It's conceptually interesting now that we're having a podcast right. about it. There's not wordplay. No. You're just emphasizing different parts of this. Yeah, and also, okay, so later on, they do it again. So within the story, Nicole Kidman has uh, fainted and is not well, and uh, the Duke is trying to find out what's going on. So the uh, is he the owner, stage manager, or something of yeah, the Moulin um, Rouge? So Harold. It's, it's yeah. It's he's like the owner. Yeah. Okay. So he's trying to again distract the Duke so the Duke doesn't find out whatever because they're trying to get money. It's a whole. We'll explain. So he starts. He he says she's uh, she's praying, and you know the Duke doesn't believe that. And, or confessing she's confessing her sins that's what it is and mm-hmm. the dude doesn't believe it and he goes uh and he starts making this up on the spot and it's madonna's like a virgin yeah he's like oh she said that you made her feel like a virgin touched for the very first time like and, and it keeps going and it's fine and it's actually a high point i think for me but so yeah it's a very fun sequence yes and like it, it becomes a full-on musical number with like the the, the guys in the room all become like dancers yeah. around harold Singing, dancing and, waiters yeah and like they're doing the, you know, he's like, like a virgin. Like, and, you yeah. know, he's kind of, the, the whole movie is just putting a bunch of mustard on shit. Like, yeah. to the point that it's kind of grating on me personally, but like, it's some people's thing and some people will, will enjoy this inherently more than I do. And I understand, I respect that. Mm-hmm. But for me, it was a lot. But yeah, that's the stuff I find fun. Yeah, but like, <laughs> sure. Okay. Uh-huh. I'm not, I'm not yeah. going to tell you that your opinion is wrong. It is, but I'm not going to tell you that. Um, <laughs> I'm just going to say it. Gently into my microphone. That's correct. This is... You know, if only you could just start singing like you and McGregor and have the, you know, instruments come in behind you and everybody shuts up and listens. Because right? he does that a lot. But, yeah, you were saying with uh, Ziegler. Oh, it's, it's fine. I can wait. I am a patient boy. I wait and I wait and I wait and I wait. My time is water down the drain. It's Fugazi. <laughs> yeah. They did not include that in this movie. No. I don't that's, think they even wanted it. That's my... Why? That's way better than a lot of this. Oh, there's um, a whole like list of like songs that didn't make it in there and stuff, and that was not. Oh, yeah, sure, yeah. sure. So Harold and, and the waiter men sing like a virgin, and then they sort of like... They're like, we're going to flip the script, and he... The Duke is now going to sing more of like a virgin... And it's, again, I think trying to call into contrast, like, using this familiar context of the lyrics to the song to help describe their characters and their wants and desires. But I was like, wouldn't it have just been more interesting to have him do a second? They keep doing these mashups where they're combining songs. Yeah. So why not have... times that they choose not to do that makes it seem... Right. Like, why didn't you do that? And they're combining combining songs when, like, everybody is singing towards the same goal like the, all the, everything they're singing means the same thing and they're combining them and they're showing like look these songs all have this in common kind of yeah as like as like a medley or an overture and like that's a whole other musical thing and like but in this it's like okay it just felt like well it missed opportunity to have him sing a different song a counter song and then put these you know mash these two songs together that don't go together mm-hmm. that are also like conceptually opposed like somewhat not mm-hmm. opposites necessarily, but like contrasting. Yeah. You know, like it's the fuck, it's the South Park, a little bit country, a little bit rock and roll like bit, you know, mm-hmm. like, or, um, 
I mean, anything that does that where, you know, when I sing, it's this kind of instruments and then this person comes in and then it's a harp or whatever. Like, and they, you know, you do that and then, yeah. and then it becomes a beautiful, like composed thing with all the parts in harmony. And you're like, Oh, look at that. Music's great. The magic of music, everyone. Mm-hmm. And like, that's cool. And they didn't do that right. in a couple of spots here. And then sometimes when they do do it, it's very like bad. You're not really mashing these things up as much as you think you are. You're just sort of cramming them together. Like some stuff works and then they add too many parts and they don't all work together anymore. Right. They A do might it. work with B, but C only works with A. C doesn't work with B. B, right. right. And then they're adding like D and then they're doing like an A reprise, which we'll call AE. And like AE is like a totally different meter. And you're just like... You know, Why is I, this done? I think also <laughs> it's that you're much more of a musician than I ever was. Listen, I'm and... just a musician in that I like music. I know what I like. Well, and I taught myself to play a little bit. You did teach yourself to play. I feel like you also have an ear for composition because you have a lot of friends that are that have more training than you yeah. who go... Oh, you do interesting stuff that makes sense, and yeah, I'm a savant, basically. <laughs> yeah, like even though you can't explain it using like the correct terminology and stuff, you understand it on a much more you know in your bones kind of level. Yeah, because I know have, what I like and right. what sounds good. Right, you don't have to, to think about it as like directly or consciously. Yeah, I'm not doing it because you right. know form dictates yep. that if you do an A B C chord structure, then you should do a b d f you know in this part i just go like uh i don't want to keep playing abc because then this is a ramon song right let me try this that doesn't sound good let me try this that (laughs) That sounds better yeah exactly like right i get it um i don't think i can do that and so i think that there are things that are much less grating to me because i don't have that same level of comprehension or irksomeness that's, that's fair yeah that's totally fair but i would argue that you can do it because I can do it. And if I can do it, anybody can do it. All right. But my, my point is I don't think I'm wired in a way that this sort of thing detracts from my enjoyment in the same way it does yours. Sure. 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 So I think that that might be the crux of why this isn't a hate watch for me is because, you know, there's like still. Yeah. You still don't hate this movie. I still don't hate this movie now. Oh my God. It's ugly. <laughs> I'm not, this is not a bit. This movie is ugly to look at for the most part. Not all of it. Not, it's not like no, across there, the board. There, but are, like, there are sequences that are good. Um, and I think that's, so they do a lot of very specific lighting. And I think a lot of that's because Nicole Kidman's so goddamn pale. Yes, sure. That they do a lot of blue light on her because that's it makes her even, look so ethereal. But sure, like, sure, sure. But that's not it even. It also is the, the colors, your own. The colors in this are largely bad. Huh. It, is, it is largely just, like, ugly, an ugly, muddy, like, mess with no, you know, no through line, no conceptual visual through line for a lot of scenes. Um, the entire movie looks like a fucking montage for from uh, another... It's like if, if I took, like, a six-hour cut of this and turned it into two hours. Everything, half this movie, at least half, is a montage of something yes. or other, which is exhausting. The scene, the composition in some of the scenes is like I don't know if they were specifically referencing specific imagery or something, but like it didn't look good or well done well, in any real way. Like okay, so you know the other how thing we talked about. Uh, Nicole Kidman had a very like serious injury on this, where like they were shooting her in a very specific way, and then John Leguizamo was playing uh, like a different height than he actually is, and so I think there was a lot of like shooting around stuff that then really dampens your compositions. 
sure. Okay, so the, the I mean the Nicole Kidman thing, I got no problem with this. Like, yes, mm-hmm. you have to shoot her from a certain angle, a certain you know chest up. That's she, fine. She, uh, in doing uh, one of the dance numbers, uh, broke a couple of her ribs and fucked up her knee. So, but like, so she was in a wheelchair for part of the production. Yes, that's I understand that. Yeah. And like that's okay. John Leguizamo. I mean, oh, oh, you know what? Actually, yeah, it was it was sad that that was the that was the six months that he didn't have his shins. They were at the cleaners. Like that was a choice. It was a choice everybody yeah. chose to make. Yeah. So as a fucking director, as the director of photography, you go like, we're gonna have an actor, you know, kneeling, and we're gonna have to pretend like he doesn't have legs from his knees back, like Dorf. Does everyone understand my reference of Dorf? I don't know if this is going over. In the nineties. There was a, a direct-to-video series from, I don't remember the comedian, but he did a character named Dorf, D-O-R-F-F. Okay. He would walk on his knees with, like, shoes, you know, around his knees that, so it looked like those were his feet, right? Got it? Okay. And it would be like, Dorf goes fishing, Dorf does golf, Dorf tours the pyramids. I don't fucking remember, right? But that was it. It was just, like, some kind of slapstick physical comedy from this guy. And that's what John Leguizamo is doing now. All this comes from the stage. Yeah, you kept saying Dorf, and I was thinking Brad Dourif, and I'm like, that's definitely not. Who he's <laughs> Brad Dorf. <laughs> Brad Dorf. That's how they should have him play Chucky. Hey, it's me. I'm Chucky. I'm on my fucking knees. Look at these tiny shoes. <laughs> I'm just saying. I knew that Brad that... and Fiona Dorf. <laughs> I just knew that it was wrong from context. Yes, no. But didn't know what you actually meant and it's, figured you would yeah. eventually come around to explaining yourself. I feel like I've mentioned Dorf in passing on the show, but now it is actually, you know, relevant. So I, I felt like it was worth me going into a little bit. But yeah, he they would sell yeah. these like late night, buy it off TV, like eight ninety nine for a two hour VHS. Dorf goes to the proctologist. Like, yeah, no, never knew him. It's, it's not good. <laughs> so, so like a weirder Mr. Bean? Um, in that it's just a character. Mr. Bean okay. is an average man who, I, well, he's an alien probably, or possibly an <laughs> angel. We're not really sure. Whatever. Um, you know, and all that comes from a stage background. That's a trick that stage actors would do in things, you yeah. know. You'd have people playing like Puck, and they were like, I'm going to play Puck as like a little short guy on his knees. Like, you know, I'm going to do this, and you, yeah. you would do that. And like, that's... I understand the theatricality of it and Mm -hmm. how that conceptually works in this film. Right. But if you know that going in, that this is what you're doing, you should figure out like, okay, we're going to shoot these scenes a certain way then. Yeah. You know, like plan around it so that you can't, you know, it's not a good excuse. Oh, well the movie looks bad because John Leguizamo is kneeling and we had to shoot it in such a way that you couldn't tell that he was kneeling so that it looked like those were his feet. It's like, okay, but did you not know he was going to do that? Did he surprise you every single day with this? Like, even if it was a choice Leguizamo made on day one, which it was not, because the character is in dialogue, described as a dwarf, before we see that it's John Leguizamo, you had to know that was coming. So figure out your thing. You know, Peter Jackson had an idea when he was going to make Lord of the Rings of how he was going to make all these actors who are vaguely the same height look drastically different heights. He had a plan. I just, that's what direction is. That's what cinematography is. You figure out what the shot is. You don't just go, I don't know. Is there any way we can hide your feet? I don't know. It's Moulin Rouge, guys. Let's just shoot it. Like, what the fuck? I think it's... I think what's also happening for me with this is because it's so clippily edited... Too much. The only things that I can really 
remember are like the slower right more... the stuff that is yeah. actually on screen for more than three seconds right, right more more cinematic sequences yes yeah sure um and some you know, of those are very the, good them on the elephant and and you know dancing yeah. what kind of looks like the clouds above paris yes and all that stuff and that and, was like a nice know, bit of and, like f- and, f- fantastical realism where yeah, like yes they're high up the and stage all this stuff right there's they're yeah. high up and there's yeah. like clouds and it yeah. for a moment res- yep. yes and that's like yep. kind and of nice the only thing that i remember that's jarring is how little spatial anchoring you get in the like finale of the show oh yeah and and you know there's a gun somewhere right. but like who knows where it is or where any of these actors are in relation to each other in a physical space and yeah. we're just cutting back and forth from people so that's like definitely the one time that i'm irked by it where i feel okay. very unmoored but think about it like this Right? Mm-hmm. We've, we watch a lot of movies. Yeah. We've watched and discussed on this show Absolutely. a lot of action scenes. Yeah. One of the qualities we both like in action scenes is A, when they're not edited to fuck all. Yeah. And you can actually see that this leads to this and these characters are related spatially like this. And B, when you have a sense of where things are mm-hmm. in a room without it being a wide shot that shows you everything. Although the thing is with a lot of the dance numbers, I thought a lot of them were very attractively filmed. Well, you were j- literally just talking about the gun sequence, which is the show-stopping finale of the film. But it's, it's the whole fucking finale. But it's not actually the set piece in in the movie. It's the set piece of the the stage show. It's it is the set piece in the movie. I didn't think so. <laughs> it's the finale. Yeah, I didn't. What is the set piece for you? Oh gosh, um. I mean, like, there are definitely a lot of other sequences. What is the set piece if that wasn't it? Movies have a set piece, a thing that, like, is the big thing from the movie. That's how the, that's where the movie was leading to. I mean, it's probably one of, like, the earlier numbers. No, those are just sequences you like better. That's, like, your most memorable scene. Well, because... (sighs) This is literally the set piece of the film. It's what, the whole film is structured to lead to this both within the narrative of the story and in well, all the characters' arcs. No, because that actual scene, the real like heart of that is when the curtain closes and she's dying. That's the dramat that's the end of her dramatic arc, but like that's the And that's and that's what that scene is building towards. The ending sequence of the show is everything resolving, but the things that are resolving aren't actually shown on stage, they're all behind the scenes. Well I mean we've already wrapped up the plot of the film like the all the conflict in the film is well it's that, is the duke it's that and the duke has already been dealt with and the gun flew out the window and hit the eiffel tower and everybody loved that didn't we folks it's it's <laughs> it's that finally everybody understands everything where a lot of the dramatic tension in this was not everybody having all the information about who liked who and who was dying and what yeah, was got, going on got a big old problem with that too um <laughs> So this whole movie jerks off the whole time, and when it comes all over your face at the end, it repeats a thing from the beginning of the movie, and uh, the cum dries into the shape of the words truth, beauty, freedom, and love. And above all else, love. That's that's the like the mantra of this film. Truth, beauty, freedom, and above all else, love. And those are supposed to be like the tenets of... If like the movie, I mean that's really what it is. They're they're saying it's oh. the, it's the central. So you would argue that almost none of that is in this. That is correct. Okay. This movie that tells sure. you it's about these things doesn't actually seem to be about most of them. Uh huh. It's definitely not about truth. The whole movie is people lying okay. constantly. Yeah. Pretty much. I mean, not not a hundred percent. That's why that's a tragedy. 
I get, I guess. But why is tragedy not one of the things that like is important in the well, film? Because the well, film no, is telling it's... you, the film is telling you that those four, te- those four yeah. pillars, the yeah. four pillars of AEW, <laughs> right? Are but they're they're ascribing it to the bohemian art scene, yeah, right? Sure. But it's also the mantra of the film, right? right? But it's but the truth is right out the fucking window. I would argue that beauty is right out the fucking window for the most part. Like aesthetically, the movie is gross. It looks bad. Some of the costumes are great, like legitimately yes. great. Especially a lot of Nicole Kidman's costumes yes. are better than almost anyone else's costumes in the whole movie by a huge margin. Like not just like. Like, if you take any one of them and you just isolate it and go, is this a good suit or skirt or whatever? Like, is this a good outfit? I'd be like, sure. But, like, on screen, you got a lot of people dressed kind of similarly. It all blends together. None of it really stands out. Nicole Kidman frequently really stands out in a good way. Yeah. Um, her, I think her costuming is incredible. Mm-hmm. Some of the sets, again, same thing. By themselves, sure. But in a movie that's, like, nothing but wall-to-wall this shit... It's overwhelming to the point where you stop seeing it. Okay. It's like those, it's like the fucking poster to the Truman Show where it's a million photos of Jim Carrey, but when you step away from it, it looks like Truman's head. Like, it's a million TV screens of him doing his life. Right, it's one of those like mosaic things, magic eye, trick Johns, right? It's like that. It's like, well, I can't really appreciate this set or that set or this because it all looks like this and it's all so much. It's all dialed up to 10 or 11. For the most part, there's very little in this movie that doesn't look like that. Even yeah. like his pauper's apartment is like, you know, it's an artsy like pauper's apartment. Like it's, it's. I, staged... I actually have a note that uh, his building really feels to me like uh, the building in Vibrations. The the oh yes yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the 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 guy that loses both his hands yeah. and they build him new hands. Previous episode, I think thirty six yeah. perhaps. Yep, and then he's a a, a techno robot. DJ. He sure is. Um, but yeah, when great he, episode, great movie. But when he he goes back to uh, the, what's Christine Applegate, Christine Applegate's apartment, she's got yeah like a bunch of different building neighbors that are all like very you know '90s bohemian artists and metal workers and shit. It's the friends apartment syndrome where yeah. it's like, <laughs> hey, you all have like day job, like you know, Monica's a chef, sure. Phoebe's like never really employed. Uh, Rachel might have like a department store job as a Wasn't buyer Phoebe for like a dog walker and then a surrogate later or something yeah but okay. like the, i didn't watch the show a lot was on for friends. eight years okay. they did have different jobs but my point is like okay. for the most part okay it's like phoebe's not really employed for the most part it's like kramer like kramer might you might see kramer working a job here or there on seinfeld but like it's only when it's funny right it's like yeah. it's for the episode or for like a storyline or, sure. or just to give her something to do yeah you know but like it's not like oh what's kramer's job you can't tell me because he never really has one right if you, it's like hey what you know george costanza has like five jobs throughout the series but they're like a whole arc you know my point is, it's the friend's apartment syndrome of, like, yeah. how do you afford this extremely, not only, like, big, but very nice apartment? Well, I mean, how nice could it be? Because uh, a narcoleptic Argentinian falls to the floor. <laughs> That's yeah. true. Uh, should I do the the quick overarching story? Yeah, we've, we've been that, talking for, like, 40 that, minutes. Yeah, now that we've been doing this for a while. Yeah, let's do the plot. So, Christian is a writer. He's British. He's played by Ewan McGregor. Uh, he moves to Paris from London to be part of the Bohemian art scene in uh, nineteen or in eighteen ninety nine. Movie starts in nineteen ninety. We do a nope. Well, actually, the movie nope. starts. Nope. 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 What? 
movie does not start in 1990. Yeah, it does. No, it does not. 1990. The year of the gap. 1900. Pleat front khakis. 1900, and then the year before is 1899. That is correct. Yep. Because that's a totally different movie where he's like, mm-hmm. I was so in love with her that yeah. I refused to die. Yeah, yeah. 27 hours. Got it. <laughs> Which is a callback to the time that I misremembered the title of the film, 127 Hours. And Hunter thought it was very funny because he's like, that's a little over a day. And you're sawing your yeah, arm you're, off. You're with stuck there. Teeth. You're stuck there and you were like, I guess I'm going to cut my arm off with a pocket knife after just about over a day. Oh, he had a pocket knife. That's good. I think so. I thought he had I've to ne- chew his own arm I've off. I've never like seen it. I've never seen it because I don't want to see a man remove his own arm. I think I might have also said that the last time we talked about this. But anyway. God damn it. <laughs> Yeah, again, like 127 hours, that's several days. You're starting to really be dehydrated. Yeah. Like, you can mostly sleep for 27 hours. You're like, well, yeah. I'm stuck here. I might as well take a nap and see if anybody comes to save me. Yeah. Yeah, so the the year is 1900, not 1999. My bad. <laughs> it's, in fact, almost a century earlier. I was so heartbroken that I started grunge. Oh, boy. <laughs> I waited 90 years and I started grunge. I'm Ewan McGregor, the only ginger marquee leading man. Correction on a previous episode. <laughs> I'm so derailed and we didn't even get started. God. The year um, was 1900 and we're rolling well, out okay. to the Moulin Rouge. Okay, so a thing I don't remember, the very first thing you see on screen is his, a... His name was Christian Fietti. <laughs> I heard there's a jumping night joint that's got tons of love. Let's go check it out on this episode of Triple D. Diners, drive-ins, and diphtheria. Oh, boy. (laughs) I thought one of those Ds was going to stand for D's nuts. For Dukes and Dancing and D's nuts. Yeah. I'm Christian Fietti. We're rolling out to the Moulin Rouge. (laughs) It all comes together. This is why we workshop these things. So, forgot about this completely, but the very first image that you see is a conductor mm-hmm. in front of a curtain. Yes. And it slides apart. And they did the 20th Century Fox, and he's conducting his ass off. Yeah, it's great. It's actually like, I was like, that's really cute. Yeah. And then it closes and it opens again and again. More very awesome, you know, full body conducting. Um, yeah, yeah, because like this guy was only going to conduct for two minutes yeah so he's fucking yeah 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 um and it opens with uh john leguizamo singing kind of like uh a a, like you know opening prologue song thing about you know how it's france and how there's this guy who is a sad artist or whatever you know yeah um and you know you have ewan mcgregor in his apartment and it's all like black and white and you know it's desaturated yeah and yeah he's got a bunch of like bottles and and papers around and stuff and he starts writing on his typewriter and it's about how the greatest gift you'll ever learn is just to love and be loved in return right which is another whole issue i have with this film um not conceptually but the whole the whole movie everyone in this movie is like a natural songwriter you know they're constantly just coming up off the top of their head with popular pop songs from a hundred and something years later right yeah but then that the again the the main like one of the main through lines of the film greatest thing you'll ever learn is just to love and to be loved in return is so off tempo 
as to be like good poetry, not a great song, and you're selling this movie on songs. Sure. They refer sometimes to it as poetry, but they're singing it. Yeah. And then that has weird rhythm. Mm-hmm. That's weird, and I'm just like, that's janky, and you should have given that a couple other passes. Mm-hmm. I also, as a, as a, as a, as a thing. So I mean, I don't know all the legal nonsense behind this movie, but like it was 20th Century Fox, which meant they had access to all the songs that 20th Century Fox owns as far as what they could and could not include in the film, and and that's fine. But that also annoys me with how repetitive things are, where it's like you kind of have, you know, like 20th Century Fox is not a mom-and-pop company even then. You know, they had access to tons of fucking songs, tons of music, tons of lyrics, and yet they're repeating the same sorts of things like so often as to just like just become grating to me to listen to it just felt like half finished like you didn't really do this i also if you're going to do a thing where the whole bit is we're going to use pop songs and we're going to do it we're going to basically invent on film the concept of jukebox musical because we're not directly adapting another musical and their songs whatever they are we're just taking songs from both music and film because the sound of music yeah is in this. They kind of drop... Besides that and the can-can, everything else is pop music. Yeah, which that um, but, is actually from the French operetta that's Orpheus in the Underworld. Sure. And uh, it's called The Infernal Gallop, which is a country dance. But... Oh, one second. Yeah. Yeah, it's the, th- it's the thing people most commonly associate with the can-can it dance, is. which is... It's the can-can, that's what it I has become. Yeah, I don't know about you, but I first knew that from ShopRite's that's jingle correct. for their can-can sale. That's right. No, I knew it from, I think, Looney Tunes cartoons. Oh, yeah. Or other cartoons, something sure. like that, but then it was yeah. popularized. Looney Tunes love playing with operas. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they're very cultured people. Yeah. It's almost like the opposite of now. Right. <laughs> right, where we're culturally bereft and people are just like, sure. we should fill this movie with memes. Also, you know, a lot of operas are Italian and cultural pride and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. They're also French. There's a lot of yeah. French opera. Oh, I know, because that's apparently what some of yeah. this has been based off of. Is There's a lot of uh, French operas where people are sick. Yeah, well, it was France. <laughs> so, yeah. It was France. Like, there, there, there are two main contributions to like world culture are cheese and wine which are things you get by letting other stuff go bad (laughs) okay so like yeah it makes sense that a lot of them were sick because some of them were like i don't think you should drink that coffee that coffee has green shit on it and they're like i'm making a new thing it's going to be like wine and then they drink it and they're like oh no i'm throwing up out of both ends now wasn't louis pasteur french the father of pasteurization? The guy that invented fields? The guy that invented milk that doesn't go bad He's so like, fast. oh, look at all of this. It is so pastoral. Oh, boy. <laughs> um, also, I don't know if you did this on the podcast, but weren't you referencing recently the, uh, the the Scorpio episode on The Simpsons? And he's like, you know... Hank Scorpio? Yeah, and the, the you know, uh, what country would you, would you rather oh, yeah. get rid of? Hey, Homer, uh, yeah. what country should I destroy? Uh, Italy or France? France? He's like, yeah. Nobody ever says Italy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I like, I like, listen, I like French contributions to culture and art. I really yeah, do. Sure. I love cheese. I enjoy wine sometimes. Um, yeah. But I love, you know, like art and things. Uh, and they have a lot of art in France. Tons of it. Yeah. It's still a, a country that loves art. Yeah. You know, more than maybe others do, you know. Mm-hmm. Others are more concerned with commerce or 
futurization and you know looking forward and, and i think france is still very much like or you could just chill the fuck out for a while yeah. why don't you come smoke cigarettes in front of a baby <laughs> have this cheese have this yeah. wine also we have good bread everything here is great just relax mm-hmm. yeah seems fun I'm not shitting on France. I got nothing against France. Also, they famously have the uh, catacombs and stuff. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Lots of metal band album covers down there. (laughs) Just waiting. Just waiting. Just. (laughs) All right, stand next to that skull. Which one? Oh, that one. Oh, yeah, that's a cool one. Yeah, spoiled for choice. (laughs) Yeah. So you're, you're getting very granular with the plot. You're like, he's typing on his typewriter and blah, blah, blah. He lives in a shitty apartment. He's a he's a writer who wants to learn about love, but he's yeah. never been in love, so he came yep. to France to find love. His dad told him it was a stupid idea. His dad, who apparently had a copy of the script, because his dad <laughs> seems to know exactly what's going to happen in the first 20 minutes. <laughs> so we keep cutting to his dad being like, oh, don't go there. And then he goes there, and he's like, Duh. actually, his dad's like Scottish English something. He's like, yeah. don't go there. And he goes there, and he's like, don't go to the Moulin Rouge. And he goes to Moulin Rouge, like, don't fall in love with an Australian woman. And he's like, I'm going to do that too. But You don't so, tell me what to do, dad. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So, he lives in his little apartment, and then um, one day, uh, you know, performing troupe falls through the ceiling. Yeah. Um, and that's how he meets his new friends. Yep. And gets roped into subbing in for um, the uh, narcoleptic Argentinian. No. Yeah. The Argentinian is asleep. And so he's oh, going to read. so he does. Yeah, but yeah. then he ultimately ends up taking some other guy's job. Yeah, well, yeah, they had that's a writer. What I we were talking about. <laughs> they had a writer, and that fell through. Well, it's they're like, oh, you guys could write it together because he's got such a fresh take on stuff, and you know, and he's like, no, I won't work with him. I'm leaving. Yeah, and he walks out of the movie. He goes goodbye, yeah. movie, and he Is leaves. It like Audrey or something. Doesn't matter. It's yeah, but yeah, super doesn't matter. He literally leaves oh, yeah. the movie forever. Yep. He wanders off of the edge of the movie and falls into nothingness. Mm-hmm. So. Now, Ewan McGregor is the writer, yeah. and uh, because he wrote The Hills Are Alive with the Sound of Music. Because mm-hmm. they're trying to figure out, they're like, the hills are vibrating with something, and they're figuring, you know, and it's a funny gag, because we all know it's coming, and the music keeps trying to crescendo, mm-hmm. and then... Well, it's also Ewan McGregor's first instance of using the voice, where if he just belts something out, the music comes in behind him, yes. and it's amazing, and the hills are alive. Yeah, he's like, he's like, and... perhaps, he's like, the hill, and they're like, blah, 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 and he's like... The, um, hills? the hills are, uh, and he's like, the hills are alive with the sound of music. Yep, and everybody goes, oh yeah, that's that's, that's like good. that's amazing. And yeah, then, you know, and they all jam out for a while. Like yeah. I've been in recording sessions. That's how it works. Yeah. Um, but yeah, they all jam Except for a while. You're usually the one with the biggest microphone. That's right. My talent. <laughs> they. Uh, yeah, we've talked before about how usually you see Ewan McGregor's penis and stuff. Yeah, no, not in this, unfortunately. Yeah, you don't, you don't, but they talk bump about, it up another star. Yeah, honestly. they they talk about it. They don't. They talk about his talent. They talk which about is his talent, stand in which for is his penis. Allison argues it's supposed to be, uh, yeah, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's supposed to be subtext, is. like his penis is supposed to be subtext in this conversation. But my Nicole argument, Kidman talks about the size of his talent. My argument yeah. would be that we have seen further on in this movie that none of these motherfuckers is smart enough to maintain subtext for this long. They just eventually will all just say it out loud as text. Or as you said, they said the quiet part loud and the loud part quiet because that happens a lot in this, Mm -hmm. which is annoying because it happens back to back to back like that. It's again, it's 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 like fucking Jade future episode (laughs) Jade where it's like, we just do a car chase and now we're doing a car chase. 
And like they're functionally the same thing. You know, we go through 40% of the movie or 50% of the movie. And then all of a sudden within the span of about, you know, a day in movie time, two different people tell the Duke what's going on by removing all subtext. Because what happens is the troop get you and McGregor to stand in as the writer because they're trying to get a job working at the Moulin Rouge with Satine. She is a very famous performer and courtesan. She's got aspirations of being an actress. And there's a bit of a mistaken identity thing where she thinks that Ewan McGregor is a duke that might invest in a big show that they're doing. So she's going to fuck him. Yep. And then we find out that, oh, no, Ewan McGregor isn't the... Well, yeah, and Ewan McGregor's told that, like, he's got a meeting with her... Right. To impress um, her with his yes. poetry and his writing skills yes. to try and get them a gig as the writers and the, you know, built-in performance troupe to do a show with her. Yes. Because they have dancers and all this, but, you know, the idea is they put on this acting troupe will come in and they'll do a full show. Okay. Right. So she thinks he's the Duke, so she's going to sleep with him. And then he's like, uh, he's like, you know, because he's straight up asking her, like, do you want me to read, you know, like, we can go somewhere privately and I can read you some poetry. And she's like, oh, yes, poetry. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Uh, huh, huh, huh. Mm-hmm. And then. And him, having never met women before, he doesn't never... understand what's going on here. Yeah, like a virgin. Touch yeah. for the very first time. Yeah. So, you know, they go back to her, her room, her quarters, and she pounces on him and he's like, oh, and then he reads her poetry, which again is reciting the Elton John song. And I then she realizes... I don't think it's supposed to even be her room so much as like the... Uh, the fuck abode? Fuck air- yeah, the fuck abode for the evening. The fuck the fuckateria? Uh, yeah. same, same thing with like the gothic tower is supposed to be another zone of fuckery. The gothic castle. <laughs> and then the duke actually comes up to the quarters and you know there's a bit of like yeah. straight up bullshit where you mcgregor is hiding behind nicole, nicole kidman stick legs right <laughs> yeah like yeah, that's, she's that's one she's of the more unbelievable parts of that yeah she's basically built like a floor lamp in a lucille ball wig in this <laughs> and he's hiding behind her i don't think so yeah i mean she eventually gets him over to the uh refreshment cart yeah. but like there is definitely a little bit where it's just her with a very see-through cape. Yes. Uh, it's like a nightgown to cape hide thing. Him. Yeah. yeah. And, like, and I get that that is, again, traditional, I think, theatrical farce. No, totally. But it's not shot like that. Yeah. So it looks like he's trying to convince us of the truth of it. Yeah. You know, like it looks like Lerman is trying to convince us that he's hiding and that the Duke can't see him. Mm-hmm. Whereas if it was just playing out on stage or the shot was a little different where we're just getting the absurdity of it. Yeah. Then that comes through more. Right. Rather than trying to make it seem more legitimate, which undercuts the farce. So you're saying if it was a little bit more like stylized or stagey, that right. it would feel a little bit more... Yeah. If the whole thing, and that's the thing is, okay. so I think the explanation and defense of why this movie is just a little too much constantly is that it's era and subject matter appropriate. This is the Moulin Rouge. It was the height of decadence, you know, mm-hmm. like it was, it was opulent. Yeah. Beautiful costumes, beautiful women, sex everywhere, you know, yeah. like their, their, you know, boobies are coming out the tops of their brassieres and they're, you know, they're wearing, you know, crotchless underoos and all this like. Yeah. Which that was, uh not used in the movie as a stylistic choice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To allow it to not have an X rating. Yeah, and also not to smell like crotch in there. You get a bunch oh, of dancers, a bunch of people doing dance routines all day. It's going to smell like Fair. a goddamn gym locker room. Yeah. Anywho. Yeah, you know, like, yeah, sex was everywhere, you know, like, 
everybody's drinking absinthe and, and you know, and, yeah. and doing drugs because it was 1900 and they didn't even know they were drugs, really. They just thought it was, like, a new kind of cookie you ate that made you go insane, you know, like, whatever. Like, it's the Sherlock Holmes thing of, like, he's like, I have a toothache, so I'm going to take all this cocaine, you know, yeah. like, it's that. It's that era. We didn't know what things were exactly or by, by modern standards. So, like, yeah, it was everywhere. It was a lot. It was overstimulating. It was, you know, mm-hmm. and I think that's what stylistically he's going for but i also think that at some point it's just not any fun to for me to be in it like you know that that editing and like he does these weird um photo collage effects where like things are you know fading in and out in different corners of a of an image in the screen and all Mm -hmm. this and you know it's it sort of gives you the effect of like a movie poster where it's like look there's the there's the big um, windmill and in the blade is like this face. And then, you know, in the other blade is a different face and, you know, like all this and behind the blades and the sun is a third face. Like it's like that, but it doesn't really look good. It looks like a shitty Photoshop job, you know, or like it just looks like it doesn't look artistic. It just looks slapped together kind of. And a lot of the colors are kind of like muted and they, they clash yeah. in weird ways we that aren't. About that. Yeah. Like I just think, yeah, visually it's, too much but also not done well like romeo plus juliet which we did is visually very detailed there's a lot there's a lot of color there's a lot of patterns there's a lot of detail there's a lot of it you know but it all seemed more composed and it's two completely opposite visual aesthetics it's ye olde imagery and at the time current los angeles you know style Mm -hmm. but you have like you know these these guys in the, the you know open uh hawaiian shirts and shit like on a decomposing stage on a beach like and that's a good and very well done blending of these two visually like combining these two elements whereas in this it was just like it's just too much like it was just a mess of of imagery it was like you know it was like it was like your vision board where it's like, oh, all the things are here, but they're not composed in a way. You just have them all up there. And yeah, I think if it was shot more like a play, if it was, you know, not, it doesn't have to be static. I've seen, you know, there are other movies that adopt the sort of, like, you know, the way you shoot a thing tells us how much we have to take it seriously. Like, there's something about Mary. He fights that little dog. <laughs> I haven't seen that movie in a very long time. Right, but you, not, but uh, you know that he, he fights a dog in it. Her, I don't her, remember that sequence. Oh, yeah, Mary's roommate or whatever has like a tiny dog and it attacks ben stiller uh-huh. and um you know if you shoot that one way it's ben stiller beating a little dog to death yeah whereas if you shoot it a different way it's a comedy uh so like the cat and reanimator uh that i think honestly is both because <laughs> cat dead details later but also he fucking fastballs that cat at the wall and it's the funniest goddamn thing i may have ever seen <laughs> uh have mercy but yeah, I think if this was a little stagier in its composition, it would make some of this stuff land in a way, and also some of the characters, because like Harold is huge, bigger than life character. Yeah, he's very he's, flamboyant. He's one, the, he's one of the most successful ones of being silly and serious, but it's kind of because he actually has like this nuance of like he's a very, you know, fatherly towards Satine but then also is like running a business and she's like the talent and stuff and yeah. you know and then he himself does a lot of performing and distraction and everything yeah he's so. 
It's Jim Broadbent. Yes. He's a talented actor. Yeah. Like, he's been in a million things. You, you know, probably would recognize him when he's not dressed up like this fucking maniac. Yeah, he's got, like, a big old fat suit on and stuff. And he's got a big old fucking handlebar mustache and All shit. That, like, yeah. it's crazy. Yeah. But his whole character is always, like, you know, regardless of the tone of the character, he's always very, he's dialed up. Yeah. So when he's doing, like, a comedy performance, he's really fucking swinging. When he's doing a dramatic performance, he's very, you know, grave and, you know. And that's what helps it work. Yeah, grave or imposing, those are kind of the two. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, like, yeah, he's Jim Broadbent, he's got a big voice. And, yeah. You know, but, like, he's edited, they, they do, like, fast motion on him. In They do. He'll There's... say something, and then he'll, like, spin around a couple times and dance to the other side of the person and say the next line, and they speed him up in between, and it's just like, oh my god, it's just exhausting. It's yeah. exhausting to look at. Yeah, they do a bit of manipulation with either speeding things up or towards the end of the movie more so, like slowing things down to, I guess, make things land, which is effective. It's just that, yeah, it's not helping maintaining your composition. Yeah, so yeah. the whole crux of the film is that Ewan McGregor is in love with her, uh, you know, with Satine, and he's going to try and try and convince her to also be in love with him, but she is kind of promised to the Duke because the Duke is going to Invest in the show. Yeah, but invest also... in the Moulin Rouge, keep mm-hmm. the keep the doors open, keep the lights on. And, you know, this is her job. It's, you know, this is what everyone that works there needs her to do. So she has responsibilities. And then over the course of the film, she, you know, does come to fall in love with Ewan McGregor. Like, pretty, it's not like a long, drawn-out process. It's pretty swift, but it's not immediate. And he's... Using the show as a cover to spend time with her yeah, and, and to he... keep the Duke away from her. Right, but he's also not good at it. No. So when thinking on his feet, trying to come up with what the show is about, it's exactly their story, except, and this is a thing that kind of really genuinely bothers me. One of them is like, it's set in um, Switzerland. I think John Leguizamo is like, yeah. exotic Switzerland, or whatever, with that stupid mm-hmm. accent he's doing. And I'm like, okay, because they had done Hills Are Alive. I'm like, okay, they're going to, like, that'll be in the show as the Hills Are Alive. Like, that's kind of fun. Like, yeah. you know, it'll be like a, a take on Sound of Music with this thing in it, right? Yeah, and the with, Duke like, is the Nazis. Right, and I was like, oh, yeah. But, like, I was like, oh, they'll, t- they'll do a take on Sound of Music with, like, a shitty Duke, whatever. But he goes, no, 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 it's India. And I was like, ew, gross. Because now we're just going to have, and it's true, we do get Nicole Kidman as an Indian, like, princess or, you know, courtesan. And, yeah. like, and, you know. The... They're, they're aspiring to a big Bollywood number, but not exactly hitting the mark on that. No, because, like, um, she's, I, I felt like, I felt like, you know, because we're and That's kind why of... we get John Leguizamo dressed as a sitar. Yeah, I also felt like because we're referencing like, you know, the Beatles and some of the things and stuff that maybe it was like also like kind of like really doing like the 60s when everybody was super into Indian spirituality. And sure, everything. sure, sure. I guess maybe. But like, it's just yeah, like a also, weird thought because they also talk about how it's the summer of love and stuff. And so like, I thought it was kind of supposed to be referential to a, a time out of that time kind of sure i guess i guess it just seems weird when you had switzerland right there (laughs) well switzerland didn't land switzerland is a place where you could set nicole kidman and i'm like yeah she looks like she might be from there Mm -hmm. india is not yeah fair and like i understand that you know like cultural appropriation was not a thing we were concerned with and like this kind of even isn't even that it you know it's just like doing it in the style of a big bollywood thing but i was just like it's a false note to my ear kind of i was just like it's just we don't need it it's just an excuse for Bos Lerman to do a big bollywood musical number mm-hmm. 
That's like, but you could just do an elaborate, no matter where the fuck you said it, it's going to be some big elaborate thing because you're Boz fucking Lerman. Like, yeah. Try like, not to make it big like that. Right. Like, look <laughs> at every other scene in this goddamn movie right. up to this point, Boz. Right. He's not known for his subtlety. No. And that's fine. That's a, that's not what I want from him. No. It's not what I expect. You know, right. that's not what I need. Yeah. Especially in this. It's fine. But I think he had, it was a little too like, I can go as big as I want. It's like, maybe you don't have to, though. So, yeah, but the plot that he makes up is a, a poor, penniless, writer, oh wait, no, sitar player, you know, is in love with the courtesan, and the evil Maharaja is going to come in and take over her country, except she's secretly in love with the penniless sitar player, and they're going to steal, you know, away with the Maharaja's money and defeat the Maharaja and save her country, and that's, like, his thing. And, like, the Duke doesn't know that's about him and her and, uh, you know, and Ewan McGregor. He doesn't know that yet. Yeah. But at one point, again, after not no one mentioning this for, in the reality of the movie, like, weeks, mm-hmm. no one mentions it, never happens, nobody slips up, and then within the course of one day, two different people, one of whom is Ewan fucking McGregor, straight up drop the artifice and are just like, you know, like, you're the Maharaja. I mean, whoops, I didn't say that. Well, so Nina does it on purpose. Right, she's a bitch. Because she's a bitch, and she's trying to destroy Satine, and it is what it is. Right, and they <laughs> fucked up because she should have done that. Nicole Kidman should have heard it and come down and been like, what's her name, Nina? Nina uh, Legs in the Air. Le- Nina Legs in the Air. So uh, she should have been played like... Played by Caroline, Caroline O'Connor. So she should have been like, Nina, you're a bitch. And then you know, she said, I'm a lover. And she's like, you're a child. She was like, I'm a mother. And then they should have just gone into Meredith uh, Brooks' uh, bitch. Like, that's what you do in this situation. Like, Mm -hmm. you're just taking pop songs from everywhere, have every major story interaction be an excuse for you to put a pop song in it. And you're not doing the whole song. They're never doing the whole song. They're doing, like... Medleys at best. Right, at best. And they're too long because they're only, like, a third of a song that they repeat, like, six times. It's like, well, you could have done all of your song. Yeah. But you didn't. You did the same verse and chorus four times and you interspersed like the can-can for 30 seconds and smells like fucking teen spirit. And you also reversed the order of two of the lines in it, which is infuriating to me. (laughs) I was just like, that's not the order they go in. I didn't notice that. (laughs) It goes, here we are now. Entertain us. Right? Mm -hmm. And then it goes... If you're stupid and contagious. But I understand they changed the, if you're from, I feel stupid and contagious. Because yeah. it's not about, right. But that's not how the song goes. Uh-huh. It goes, with the lights out, it's less dangerous. Here we are now, entertain us. That's a couplet. Yeah. I feel stupid and contagious. Here we are now, entertain us. Yeah. There's an old thing about like, I think it's actually in Close Encounters where musical phraseology and stuff, where if you end on a B, that's like um, ending a sentence on but. Like, it's just like it's an unresolved thing. Uh And for me, hearing you start midway through a couplet and end midway through the next couplet, I was just like, uh, what? And like, that's not, that's not like me being picky. That's a song everybody fucking knows, which is why you put it in this fucking movie. Because again, mm, again, the second half of the couplet's the same. It's here we are now, entertain us. So I don't understand how reorganize, like reordering it so that it's here we are now, entertain us first and then I feel stupid and contagious is any different than just doing it in the order and you're doing half the chorus. Just do it. If you're stupid and contagious, here we are now, entertain us. Like, and that'd be fine because it, it, it's the same fucking thing. But the fact that they reversed it is it, it like sticks out like a goddamn sore thumb. 
it's like you know it's like having it's like somebody misquoting a thing and they're misquoting it in the you know in their performance and you're just like that's wrong though mm-hmm. like it's just uh, uh, it's so irksome to me like the whole the whole thing it's not that they included especially teen spirit that's fine it's that they did it weird and wrong like which i understand wrong as a judgment call and all this but like i just don't get the point of reversing that like that it just sounds bad like what's you know what's a any any other music couplet like um I'm a joker, I'm a smoker, I'm a midnight toker. If they put that in here, but they reversed it for no reason, you'd be like, why can't you just do it the other way? You know, why would the, why would you sing, I'm a toker, I'm a midnight smoker, I'm a joker? Like, why would you do it like that? Like, why would you do it in that order? It doesn't serve a purpose, it just sticks out like a sore thumb. Like, so I hated listening to that. That was very bad. But that's my thing, is like, you're using pop songs, so just like, you know, and you're already cherry picking what you want. Yeah. So, I don't understand why you didn't use every opportunity to just do another pop song. Yeah. Unlike other jukebox musicals, which usually have some parameters as to what, how they're choosing their songs, this doesn't. Right. Mommy is all ABBA songs. Right. Mommy is all ABBA songs. That Rock of Ages is like an era and a a genre kind of a feel. Yeah. You know, which at least gives it like, this is... You know, and they also have the fucking updated Moulin Rouge, uh, you know, song in it. The, the the Lady Marmalade. Which I, going into this now, just now, because I haven't seen it in so long, I mistakenly remembered that all the music was going to be like that. Like, kind of remixed and done by more modern artists. And I was kind of like, maybe I'll like it more this time. Because, like, I probably didn't like it at the time because I, I'm kind of against, like, your big single being a cover of a song. Yeah. Like, covers should be, like, B-side of your single. Like, you shouldn't fucking make a single and a video for a cover you did of a fucking song. Like, that just bothers me. It's different if it's on a movie soundtrack. I get Like, there's a whole yeah. bunch of... I have a whole bunch of internal logic and rules that... Uh, what annoys me in the music industry, especially when I was in 20. Right. You know? And, I mean, there is an original song in here. It is the Come What May... Yeah, that was okay. Which we only introduced in the latter half of the film, and apparently was originally written for Romeo plus Juliet. So I but have a... wasn't used in that film, and then because it was written for a previous film but not used then, it was ineligible for the Best Song Oscar. Oh, that's kind of shitty. That's yeah. the same thing that happened to uh, Johnny Greenwood in uh, There Will Be Blood. Um, he did the score for There Will Be Blood. It's fantastic. It's amazing. The score for that film is like legitimately incredible and is utilized in the way that a score should be where you don't notice some music and they wouldn't well no no, where you don't notice it until you're supposed to notice it ah sure yeah it never detracts from what's happening on screen it only enhances it yeah um you've seen there will be blood yeah there's that scene where the fucking oil wells on fire and it's just all percussion for like 12 minutes or whatever and it slowly builds up from like one instrument to three to five and you're just like and it's just like increases attention to an amazing degree. Yeah. Because Johnny Greenwood's kind of a genius. He's a guitar player for Radiohead. And, like, even just as the guitar player and songwriter for Radiohead, he's kind of a genius anyway. Right. But, like, in this, with more free reign, he's, like, it's amazing. But since, like, two of the things on there were songs he had previously written, and as far as I know, never released, but, like, he had written them and they were just, like, sat as demos in his bedroom. Yeah. But it never come to anything. It was ineligible for the Oscar for best best score or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, that was the year I was like, oh, we should definitely burn the Oscars down. We should melt all those little gold men down and we can turn them into something useful. Like, I don't know. Butt plugs. Yeah. <laughs> Send Johnny Greenwood a little gold man butt plug. He might not use it. He might. I don't know the man. I don't know his uh, proclivities. But he might be like, this is great. Cheers. Yeah. Thanks for the butt plug, y'all. Yeah. Oscars already fucked me. At least they're acknowledging it. Yeah. 
At least now I might get some pleasure from it. Bye, see ya. <laughs> Gonna go make another great album, I'm guessing. Probably. I don't know what he sounds like either. <laughs> this is it. <laughs> Welcome back to Hunter Guesses Accents. Yeah. I mean, like, I know he's he's British of some variety, but that's as far as I that's as far as I know. Mm-hmm. Oh. But anyway, yeah. I also don't like that in a movie where you're just using all pop music that you have an original song that you put in there. I I don't. You couldn't find a song in in again. I understand they're not using literally all songs, but like you have a, a wide film library, and you couldn't find a song that encapsulated your thing. And I don't like that they're adding lyrics to songs. What do you mean? It, Roxanne, when they do the Roxanne medley. Okay, yeah. Uh, so they do Roxanne and then it becomes a tango. Yeah. And when it becomes a tango, they add new lyrics to it that are not in Roxanne that I was like, oh, what song is this? It kind of sounds like something, but I'm not catching it. It's not anything. The guy is, is original. This is Boz Lerman wrote it. Oh, okay. It's that, um, you can, you can leave me, but don't deceive me. Like that whole th- thing. Oh, that I he thought sings that was about. a different song. It's not. It's, it is. It's a different song that Boz Lerman wrote for this that he just added to Roxanne. Oh, okay. And I'm like, what the fuck? Like... You couldn't find a song that had that couplet or something like it, right? Like you couldn't, you know, in the middle of in the middle of the Roxanne medley, you couldn't have, um, you know, you and McGregor go, "If you leave me now, you take away the biggest part of me, Roxanne." Ooh, baby, please don't go. You don't have to put on the red light. Like that's I just did your job for you. Somebody gave you a mixtape with eight songs, and you're like, "This is the soundtrack to my next film." Like, what happened? Either commit to the bit or don't. You don't get to bail halfway through and then be like, "Well, I'll just I'll write a song." It's like, what? Also, by default, you're putting yourself on the same level as fucking like Sting and Elton John and Queen and like yeah. what? Like the great, you know, like again, the greatest, most popular songs and 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 musicians of all time. And you're like, oh, I can pen something as good as that. It's like, yeah, because you only got to write two lines. Because you're not actually writing a song. Because you're writing a thing and tacking it into the middle of this medley of other nonsense. I mean, that's my problem with, like, Puff Daddy taking the whole fucking... The hook of the... the it's yeah. the whole song. It's the whole song. And just rap, he just raps over the that one police song. And everybody was like, what a great song. And I'm like, yeah, it's because it was already a good song. Right. That's like, if I wrote a shitty thing, I just wrote some shitty lyrics, and then it got to the chorus and I went... But if you leave me now, you take away the biggest part of me. Baby, please don't go. And I'd be like, wow, what a great song he wrote. I'd be like, oh, I remixed it. Like, no, you just stole that part that was already popular. It's like at the end of this movie, the Duke chased Ewan McGregor, like, out on the roof. And Ewan McGregor fucking, you know, knocked the the Duke off the roof. We just cut to fucking Alan Rickman falling off Nakatomi. (laughs) I was like, oh, I'll just use this footage from another movie. I just remixed it. Nonsense. I don't actually blame Boz Lerman for this. It was because of music, which is obviously so intrinsically linked to this project, and because of all the remixing and the sampling and the mm, jerk-off nonsense, he thought he could probably get away with it in this fashion because that was the style at the time. But what he didn't realize is it was trash. I'm like, not saying there's not good remix songs, good you know songs with samples, because like... There's a lot of a lot of early hip hop sample shit in a way where they were like, I'm taking something and I'm making something new out of it. Right. Like, I didn't just take this car and replace the hood ornament and say, look, I made a new car. You know, I took this shit and this piece of something else and there's a couch in yeah. there and an old thing. And you a... took one piece at a time and it didn't cost you a dime. No, did you write that? <laughs> no. Did you write that? You put that in the pocket. You wrote it now. That's a great hook. <laughs> right. So that's uh, some of my problems with this film. Yeah. 
it's a lot of the movies built on. Well, Satine doesn't even know she's dying. Although I mean, she does know she's sick. Cause <laughs> Listen, of if you are regularly coughing up blood, yeah, you might want to get that checked out. No, just assume you're dying. Don't even waste everybody's time. Just make out your fucking will, get your affairs in order, and wait for the Grim Reaper to show. Also, at one point, Ewan McGregor says, But I didn't know that, at the time, Satine was gripped by a power even greater than love. I was like, death? Or cholera? Like, it's not cholera, it's consumption. Uh, tuberculosis. Yeah, yeah. Tuber- tuberculosis. Tuberculosis. Ooh, look, that's what he said. He's like, look at her. He, he elbowed the duke in the ribs a couple times, like, she's tuberculosis. Mm-hmm. And Duke was like, yes, quite. This is my accent now. I've become a cartoon villain. Again, if he started off as a cartoon villain, I'd have no problem. But the fact that it like, or if I felt like it was an intentional dialing up of his villainishness. But villainish. <laughs> villainishness. Villainosity? Villain. Villain. Oh, I, I don't know. Villainese quoi? His vile leanings. Um, sure, that's two words. I get. I don't know. Um, it's a tad inelegant, darling. He's also gripped with jealousy that's driving him mad. Sure, which but is I would also thing we say a couple of times. Sure, and I would, but I would like that also. But then usually, reflect... it's more in reference to Ewan McGregor's jealousy driving him mad. In the first instance, it's the Maharaja in the play, which we, is yes. the Duke, and then it's kind of the Duke, and then it's definitely Ewan McGregor to the point where. It's literally like a shot of Hugh McGregor's face, and then it's um, Harold as the character in the f- in the play appears, pops up on his fucking uh, on screen like um, uh, Osmodiar. Mm-hmm. He's like, "Hello, dum dum," and uh, no, but he go- and he goes, "Jealousy is driving him mad." To the point where I thought that was indicative of Hugh McGregor remembering the lines from the play that he wrote and being like, "Oh, my jealousy! I could let that drive me mad." And then I was like, oh, that's a weird turn for him to be, is he going to use jealousy as like an excuse for whatever? And then, no, it's just, that was, that was Boz Lerman reminding us that jealousy yeah. was a thing that we're supposed to care about in this movie. Yeah, no, it's just turning snakes into the sea. I'm sorry? Jealousy what? turning <laughs> snakes into... <laughs> that was good. Yeah, they talk about jealousy so much in this, and I was like, and they start it's, playing it's a song. before Mr. Brightside. Right, but they start, they yeah. start doing a song, and I was like, not the Gin Blossoms, Hey Jealousy? Oh, yeah, you did say that. I was like, it's right there. Like, I mean, it's 2001, so that Jim Blossom song was like four years old, but like, that's a much better song because it's a little more interesting. (laughs) Hey, Josie. Hey, Josie. And like, that doesn't have to be the main thing. That could be like all the dancers are singing that and you're doing a counter melody over it. That's what the whole movie's built on, like these weird counter melodies and mashups. And that would actually be interesting if they put real effort into them. Sure. And made them sound good. Like, literally, all those, like, acapella, college acapella groups that have, like, YouTube channels, and you watch them, and you're just like, shit, they mashed up, like, six songs, like, yeah. without any instruments, and, like, it sounds amazing. Mm-hmm. Just hire them. They're dirt cheap. They're yeah. in college. Those they don't know guys, what they're worth. See if you can get any of the uh, people that used to do Stomp. Yeah. Pentatonics. Some... Pentatonics. That's yeah. one of them. Okay. Get them to, I think it's, yeah, like, get them to do, like, do consultant and, oh, do we're going to do a mashup medley of, like, these uh. four things around this theme. They, they knock it out of the fucking park. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, this is, a diff- the times are different. This is 2001, the movie, and I understand, but, like, somebody was around then who could have done this. Yeah. And it just bothers me that, like, it was just so low effort. It's all just, like, it's all underhand fucking pitching, like, the whole movie. Both, like, the message and, like, I also have a problem with this sort of just filmmaking because it's the fucking Ready Player One shit. It's sure. like, 
it's like, ah, the audience doesn't have to actually care about shit or understand anything or pay attention even because we're just every once in a while putting up a picture of a thing they like. And they go, oh, and they clap. And they leave and they go, I liked it. Because they saw a bunch of things they like in it. Like, they just saw a bunch of, like, oh, Toad from Mario Brothers was in there. Fucking, you know, yeah, the Princess Zelda, she showed up. And over here was uh, Nosferatu, he's cool as fuck. That guy's great. Ah. And he played a banjo, and he played, like, a, a Mumford & Sons song. That was fun. I didn't expect Nosferatu to even know who Mumford & Sons was. And they leave and go, like, that was great. It's like, well, but what was the movie about? And they're like, I don't remember. It was just a bunch of shit that I saw for two hours. I liked it, though. And it's like, yeah, because it's all familiar stuff. You already like it. You know, that's the the danger of jukebox musicals. That concept mm-hmm. is like, well, we're just going to use a bunch of shit you already like and understand, and not you won't really have to try or meet the, the art on its own level. Mm-hmm. Because we're just under underhand fucking softball pitching it to you. But then you get shit like Mamma Mia, which is legitimately great. Yeah. And then also it has ABBA songs in it. Like, that's what it is. It's It, it would be a great movie with none of the songs in it. It would be a fun movie. And then they add ABBA and it just makes it better. So I really don't... I don't think that this is doing things as egregiously as Ready Player One. No, no, no. Not I at think, all. No, no, no. I I do, it's, it's not. It's not. It's definitely not. I don't mean to actually say it's a and, one-to-one ratio, but and, it is. And my read on this is not so much, oh, we're pandering to you on, like, you know, just by throwing you stuff you like. I think it's more that, like, he had a lot of influences and didn't do a good job synthesizing them into something coherent. Yeah, I mean, he's trying to do an overture of of pop and to make a connection between... The emotions within pop music, which are usually longing, like, I mean, it's, it's usually yeah. love and longing yep, and jealousy. And, and I mean, you know. like, you know, and it's also like a lot of the, the puppy love and the innocent first right. love and, and all that and, and, and the desire that like you can only have in those, you know, early couple of relationships where a lot of stuff is new. New, yes. And, you know, it's it's themes that he had already trod with Romeo That's not and Juliet. I, I love you. I love you too. I love you but... a lot. I I constantly sing stupid fucking medleys <laughs> of songs. And I to you, but it's that's one of the things I, I liked in this that didn't get enough play. He does a straight up like he's trying every. Lo- I mean, so again, I'm oh the the, he, the he, elephant medley. Where he he's doesn't trying know all the different love songs. He doesn't know that they're love songs. He's just like these are the feelings and he's manifesting them. They just happen to be in the language of love songs that we know. But he's doing like love song after love song. He did it earlier to the acting troupe. Yeah. To help describe how love... And, and yeah. he gets to the point of saying, love is like oxygen. Yeah. Right? Love is a many spluttered thing. All you need is love. Love lifts us up where we belong. You right. know, and like yeah. all that. And then when he does it with her, he does it again. And I was like, oh, you're just repeating it. That's boring. And then he elaborates on it. And I was like, oh, good. Because then he's like, I was made for loving you, baby. And I was like, yeah, this is fucking... This is where you should be at. Like, just start throwing stuff out there. Yeah. He's like, in the name of love! And I was like, okay, this is what the movie should be. If it's like this from now on, I'm on board. Because it was just like rapid fire, and it was just like, okay, we're just throwing stuff out. You don't... You know, we're not pretending like it matters. Right, and you're not fitting your scenario to the song. You're fitting the song to the scenario, right. which I think you inherently enjoy more because it's harder. It means that the story matters. Right. If okay. I if yeah. I didn't go to the movies to listen to a fucking mixtape, I could do that in my goddamn car. Yeah. I went to the movies to see a goddamn story. Sure. Okay. Yeah. Like if Boz Lerman just wanted to do as an art project, make a mix, makes thousands of mixtape and uh, mail them to people in the U.S. instead of spending all that money making a movie that would waste two hours of my goddamn time, he should have done that. And I'd be like, ah, oh, 
I went to get the mail and I had a free mixtape for my guest, my friend, Boz Lerman. That's cool. I really liked Romeo plus Juliet. Guy must have known that. Sent me a whole mixtape. I think he's in love with me. It's a lot of love songs. I think Boz Lerman wants to make out with me. I'm okay with it. He's going to slather me in sunscreen. Love with That's Lerman. a reference to the thing. It's I, a reference to the song. Dude. I was referencing Loving with Lerman. Loving with Lerman. Volume one. <laughs> Volume one. Yeah. I mean, like, again, like, yes. Because then it makes the story matter, which is why I'm at the movie theater. Sure. I, I, I wanted to like this more than I ultimately did. I just think, yeah, it doesn't, at no point does it ever settle into just being a movie, really. Like, by the time it actually has, like, a scene that I would say, like, is a scene from a movie, the movie's been on for way too long. It's melodies and, medleys and montages, which is the same thing. And some dance numbers. Yeah, but they're all edited to shit, and usually they're intercutting the musical numbers with story, so the neither one has the time for me to really appreciate it, and the juxtaposition so, doesn't work because you do it every time. I felt like the dance number. Well, okay, yeah, the dance numbers were over-edited, but shot well. We've talked about the... I sure, have it's like of... I have these five really... I have these four really nice Cezanne paintings. I cut them all into quarters, and then I, I tape the quarters together, but not to the, the pictures they go to. It's four... Every Cezanne painting I have is actually four quarters of other Cezanne paintings. Like, yeah, it's shot well, but yeah, like... Yeah, I, I think you're being uncharitable with that one, but I sure. just... And like, I also, I don't think... I don't know that it was Boz Lerman's editing. Like, I don't know... No. I don't know yeah. who's responsible for the editing. Right. You know, if it was his... If it was his yeah, thing, like, he... cut it together hard as fuck. He does seem to enjoy the occasional, like, quick cuts, weird angles. Yes, but I think in Romeo and Juliet, which was only five years before this, it's used... You do get a better sense of space it's used and judiciously. time. Yeah. There's whole scenes that exist. Yeah. They exist on screen. They're not gone in a second. Whole, you know... Yeah. Like, it's a whole scene where the thing happens, and I can see it, you know? It's supposed to, like, cutting, cutting, cutting. While this guy's talking, there's five different cuts of him talking, and somebody reacts. Holy shit, just stop. Again, I think it's designed to be opulent, overstimulating, too much, the way the Moulin Rouge must have been at that time. Mm -hmm. I think that's a stylistic choice. Yes. But, I, again, I don't know if it's a good one. I used to have a friend when we were, like, young, wanted to make movies... He heard about, um, shit, what's it called? I don't remember. It's a movie. Oh, but you're talking about doing, like, split-screen, real-time yes. stuff? Yeah, yeah, there was, I had a friend, oh, it's called, the movie's called Time Code, and it's four split-screen things that all, like, intersect at various points, and, you know, you're following a character in the upper right corner, at some point they interact with the character from the bottom right, you know, and all that, and... And it's an interesting conceptual thing, but, like, how does it hold up as a movie? Hard to say, because the first time you watch it, you're just going to be thinking about the artifice. Sure. You know? Like, if it's like if the first time I saw fucking Titanic, it was projected on the side of a bull in a field, I would only be talking about how the bull affected my understanding of the film. Yeah, no, I had <laughs> I had that in a different respect, uh, reading Hearts in Atlantis. Okay, uh, yeah, I can see King, that. Because it's three different sections of book that are all done in a different style of writing yes like it, one's third person and one's first person i think one has a follow, nested narrative where yeah, it, we're it, following it tells different a, characters yeah well it tells a story in the middle of it yeah maybe that affects something else like yeah and so yeah, yeah, yeah it was stylistically interesting but i wasn't sure how much i could appreciate beyond the that. story right, right. And so I, I get that as a concept, but right. I don't necessarily, like, I'm also aware that like, um, well, so like, um, uh, um, De Palma does a lot of split screen, although he's sure. actually very good at it. And that I think sisters has an extended sequence where yeah. it's split screen, but 
the thing is, like, that's an example of, like, well, somebody doing a thing well. Right. You can do anything works. if you do it well. And arguably, right. Time Code, this movie, is, like, the best movie to tell four simultaneous stories that intersect ever made. Sure. I don't know. I haven't seen it. But, so my friend was like, yeah, that sounds cool and all. And maybe he'd seen it and was like, that was cool and all. But, like, I want to do that with a hundred stories. And yeah. I was like, okay. And he's like, yeah, it's never been done before. And I was like, but does that mean it should be done? Like, some yeah. stuff isn't done because it doesn't need to be done because it's not going to ever be any good. Yeah, Just because you're breaking new ground doesn't mean anything. Yeah, Jurassic Park. They kept thinking about whether they could do it. They didn't stop to think about whether they should do it. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that's kind of this. Like, he, he was like, oh, I think it's going to be overstimulating. It's going to be too much, you know. And the, the audience will be overwhelmed by... The beauty and the glamour and the glitz and the editing and the all the nonsense and the horse shit and the songs. Oh my god, the songs and the words being thrown at their faces. And no one was like, right, but Boz, is that a good idea? You wanted to be so spectacular you had to say it twice. Yeah, the spectacular, spectacular, spectacular which I kind of enjoyed. Spectacular, the words in the vernacular or something or other, it's going to leave you dumb with wonderment. I don't actually remember a lot of the words yeah, and that you, whole thing. Yeah, you can... And, you know, the buy-in for it is 10%, which you'll actually think is Splendiferent or whatever. I don't remember. Yeah. Uh-huh. And we're also like... offering you some creative control. And that was like <laughs> and that was like some wordplay where I was like, this is fun. Yeah. There's moments here and there which I think, you know, are him, like, tipping his hat to uh, different, um, uh, you know, theatrical styles and things. Sure. That are fun and should have been more of the movie yeah. than this. Because it's all held together by, like... You know, that, there's that Queens of the Stone Age album. Um, I can't remember what it's called. But the, the it's like a, a gimmick, I guess, for the album is that between songs, it's a radio station turning like... And then the next song comes on like you're flip, like you're driving around flipping through a radio. Oh, okay. And it's like, yeah, that's fine. But also, like, I don't need it. Like, just like, the songs are fine. Like, it didn't really need a concept. Sure. Because otherwise it's not a concept record. Right. Was it that they were doing a lot of very stylistically different things? Yeah, somewhat, but they, but the thing is, they've always done that. Okay. They always right. have songs that, like, it's a different, you know, like, they got their bass players singing on this one in a weird falsetto the whole time. And, like, okay. they, they were just a weird band that, like, liked to fucking party and, you know, and get, get kind of high and do fun, weird stuff. Yeah, but you don't need the artifice of, like, oh, well, it's, like, different radio stations. It's like, all right, or it could just be another fucking Queen's Stone Age album that's, like, totally fucking rad. Like, mm-hmm. I think really it's that like this has some performances I genuinely find charming. It has Ewan McGregor has to be the actor that has said the word love on screen more than any other actor in the history of time, right? Maybe, yeah. Because this movie he must say it nine thousand times, right? Uh, so then also there's um uh uh a life less ordinary where he's like mm-hmm. I had a dream last night. We were on a game show called Perfect Love and like he just keeps talking about it and I was like, uh, that's a great movie. Yeah. Ewan McGregor is like if he was for a while, he's, you know, aged into a different sort of zone of his career. And yeah. he's, he's taking on different roles and things. But like, mm-hmm. and he's Obi-Wan fucking Kenobi now forever. Yeah. Got to make that money, son. Ha 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 ha. My point is, like, for a while there, like, Ewan McGregor was, like, the 90s version of, like, John Cusack. Like. Yeah. Where he was just this, like, earnest, like, guy that, you know, loves love. Like, just a fucking softy. Oh, except for the very... Well, I don't know if it was the very it's first not role I'd seen It's definitely the very first time I saw Ewan McGregor's penis was Velvet Goldmine. Yep. And in that, he's doing kind of an Iggy Pop character. Kurt Wilde. Yes. 
And so in that one, he's not so much like, you know, earnest and lovelorn no, no, as he is just Iggy kind Pop. of fucking nuts. Yeah, he's yeah. Iggy Pop. He's, uh, he's unrestrained chaos with a impressive hog. Yeah. Yeah. What I mean, like, movie. listen. It's a great movie. <laughs> it really is. He's also... I you mean, want to talk about a soundtrack that slaps full of original songs because... It's not original. A lot of them are. I thought... Velvet really? Goldmine? No, yeah. No, let's let's... Needle in the Camel's Eye by Brian Eno, Hot yep. One by Shudder to Think, 20th Century <laughs> Boy by Placebo, 2HB by Tom York, TVI, which is a Stooges song by performed by Ewan McGregor, yeah. which is good. It is. Ballad of Maxwell Demon, yeah. performed by Shudder to Think. Yeah, but was that, I thought that was written for the It might film. be. Okay. I'm, I don't know. Okay. I'm, I'm, like, I'm saying that one sounds like it might be. I don't know every song. Mm-hmm. The Whole Shebang, performed by Grant Lee Buffalo, Lady Tron by Tom York, We Are the Boys by Pulp, Virginia Plain by Roxy Music, Personality Crisis by Teenage Fan Club with other people, Satellite of Love by Lou Reed, Diamond Meadows by T-Rex, Bitter's End by Adam McKay and Paul Kimball. Yeah, they have Placebo in there, I think, doing a T-Rex cover, right? I, I, uh, 20th Century Boys? Yeah, 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 okay, you did, okay, you Um, Babies on Fire, performed by Jonathan Rhys-Myers. Uh, Bittersweet by yeah. Tom York, Velvet Space Time by Carter, uh, performed by Carter Burwell. That might just be instrumental. I'm not sure. Tumbling Down by Jonathan Reese Myers, which might be original. Uh, and Make Me Smile, Come Up and See Me by Steve Harley and Cockney Rebel. A lot of those are real songs. Yeah. Oh, I well, I mean, I know, but like, this was something that I thought had like three, like, original songs that were mostly performed in the film, but I might be mistaken. Um, but even then, like, just as far as, like, having, like, you know, like a mixtape soundtrack and stuff, it is exceptional. They do a lot of really decent music from a similar era by, you know, I don't know, cornerstones of the genre. <laughs> but the, the soundtrack features new songs written for the film by Pulp, Shudder to Think, and Grantley Buffalo. Okay, yes. Okay. And then a lot of covers and, yeah. A lot of, uh, covers and, uh you know actual act and then the actors performing songs within the yes film. yes okay yeah so yeah it looks like 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 four six of the songs or something are, are mm-hmm. originals for that yeah okay yeah boop so but yeah love that movie great movie we should do that movie yeah it's great <laughs> um if you want to talk about you mcgregor's penis the pillow book yeah it was <laughs> it's a very erotic film that was a movie that i um i knew you and mcgregor from like train spotting which you also see his penis in that and um, I was like, oh, I like him. He's a good actor. Uh, it's, a movie, it's a movie I never heard of. And it was on like late night cable. And I put it on and I was like, oh, <laughs> oh, what's this now? Book. I was yeah. like, ooh, pillow book. Ooh, <laughs> ooh, read me more. <laughs> read me more, you and McGregor's penis. <laughs> Hate watch, great watch. Uh, to the female gaze. <laughs> Cheers. Cheers. Hey, listen, we're, we're pro, you know, pro junk in movies. Pro-junk, also pro-seeing uh, cunnilingus on screen. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yes. Um, the sheer number of movies that could easily feature cunnilingus and don't is, like, shocking. It is all films. Um, <laughs> Put that everywhere. Yeah, all films could and should feature cunnilingus. Yep. There's that thing of, like, um, choose a movie to remake with the Muppets but keep one actor. Like, it's the it's the um, Michael Caine yeah muppets christmas uh thing like yeah i've seen the meme of like okay michael it's a muppets movie so you don't really have to like go that hard and he's like i'm going to play this as serious right. as a heart attack which is why it's great and why he's great 
I know. Yeah. Um, it's that formula of like he's. I mean, he's not the only human in it. I don't think. I right. Think other, but like. But he's going the hardest. Well, it's, that's not the point. Oh, okay. The point what is, is the point. The point is <laughs> that formula of like having somebody who is acting in it, and then replacing everybody else with Muppets, but okay. like the other person is still giving a real performance. Mm-hmm. So the meme going around <coughs> was like remake a movie with all Muppets except you get to keep one person. Yeah. So doing that. And it's like, oh, I would definitely pick like something, so, like something erotic because that would be hilarious. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it doesn't have to be fucking full on, um, what was it, the Happy Time Murders where there's like right. a five minute gag of like right. a puppet coming. Right. But it's like, oh, if you did like, you know, Jade. I was going to say Jade. If, I, <laughs> I love, love Jade. <laughs> It's an erotic thriller. Erotic thrillers don't get their time in the sun. Like, we don't get to talk. We don't talk about them enough because they were kind of the 90s dirty little secret. I loved those, though. I watched a lot of them. Right. And they've also fallen out of, uh, not just favor, but, like, popularity because... Well, because they're, like, vaguely trashy, but you, like... Yeah, the only ones that, you know... It's scratch some itches for some people. But also, like, they're, you know, when they're done well, like... Yeah. When they're done well, they're really good. Like, Wild Things is an erotic thriller that's really goddamn good. Yeah. Like, it's legitimately good. Um, while problematic by modern standards, I really enjoy Dress to Kill. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When we watched and, it. Yeah, I mean, anything yeah. that's going to other, you know, like, trans people or, or imply that, mm-hmm. uh, you know, like, any sort of sexual um, proclivities equal being a murderous lunatic is always going to be problematic. But Dress to Kill is great. Yeah. Like, it's super well done. And those performances are all good, I think across the board yes that's also a little bit earlier yeah but it was what it was that kind of tone though that you start getting i think i think the 90s was like a little edgier with it whereas like honestly i think the 90s is a little less um sensual yeah like there's a there's a little more sensuality with eight 70s into 80s than there is 80s into 90s like that that shift becomes more Um, sexual like uh like fear we talked about on the podcast that was early yeah um fear has yeah yeah it's vaguely erotic thriller uh i talk about jade a lot um there's sliver um which is like uh one of the baldwin steven maybe or Mm -hmm. i don't know it runs like um uh uh, like high-rise apartment complex and he's got cameras installed in all the uh tenants apartments and he like watches him shower and watches him make love and you know Mm. he's a creep but then he also sees a murder and you know whatever like rear window, but hornier. Right, exactly. I mean, that's <laughs> definitely the pitch. Yeah. You know, the famous ones are like Basic Instinct and yeah. anything with Michael Douglas. Yeah. Which was a couple. Ba- Basic Instinct might be all right with uh, Muppets. Basic Instinct with Muppets would be great. Who would you keep? Would it be Sharon Stone? It has to be. Does oh, it? Well, or could it be Miss Piggy? Miss Piggy? Oh, okay. Yeah, now I don't know. Right? We're going to have to, like, rewatch say, that and play that I say out the, I say the yeah. person you keep is fucking Wayne Knight. <laughs> so it's Wayne Knight's exact reaction to Sharon Stone's vagina, except it's Miss Piggy's yeah. vagina. Yeah. And he's just like, oh. <laughs> mm-hmm. That would be great. I don't know. Is there any, like, so the, the way the film ends, they put on the India play, and it's kind of it's just kind of weird watching it, because you're just like, I mean, it's good she's not in brown face, but also, like, she's not Indian. <laughs> she's, the, like, the least Indian person. You got somebody who cannot tan to play an Indian woman. She's ginger and pale as fuck, and, like, I just am, you know, I'm like, this is dumb. And they have somebody, they dubbed somebody singing, you know, in an Indian vo- vocalization that, like, ah, you know, yeah. like, 
that fits the Bollywood vibe of it. And mm-hmm. like, I'm just like, it ain't her. It's obviously not her. And I don't like it. And I don't know why it had to be set in India, except that Baz Luhrmann wanted to do an elaborate thing, which again, he could have said like, it's set in a Welsh cave. It would have been the most elaborate fucking like production ever set in a Welsh cave, you know? Fuck Wales. <laughs> do you want to explain this or? I feel like we've talked about this before. Maybe. I don't know. I have an ongoing feud because uh, the language doesn't make any goddamn sense. It's not and the language. It's I keep encountering it a lot. Yeah, I don't understand that. But yeah, I mean, there's. it's true. Okay, we yeah. got some, but like, you're yeah. not going anywhere. You're like, I think you're going out looking for a fight, basically, with the <laughs> Welsh language. It's like like other people wake up horny and they're like, I'm going to go masturbate or whatever. You wake up looking for a fight and you just Google fucking Welsh shit in Pennsylvania. You get all mad like... Oh, Bryn Mawr? That's they how you keep, fucking pronounce that? They keep using W's like they're vowels. That's their fucking purview. <laughs> we don't pronounce shit the way anything is pronounced around here. Like, I guess. That's how language works. <laughs> like, you don't gotta worry about the correct pronunciation. You just pronounce it how you pronounce it. Alright. Like, I mean, like, if I have to put up with people, you know, ordering espressos for my whole goddamn life, then, like, yeah, fuck them. It's Bryn Mawr. Fuck Wales. She loves Michael Sheen. Do I? Gangway for foot cycle. Yeah. Yeah, you like my... I, uh, I don't got nothing against him. Tom Jones. She loves Tom Jones. I like Tom Jones, yeah. Yeah, he's Welsh. He, he's Welsh? Yeah. Okay. It's great. He's got a full-on Ozzy uh, Osbourne thing, which we'll get. We'll put a pin in that, but <laughs> he's got a full Ozzy Osbourne thing. When he's on stage, like, it's not unusual to have fun with anyone. He sounds totally, like, American. Yeah. And then in between, he's like, Hello, love. I've got an accent now. And you're like, oh, shit, what? Huh. To the point that he's on The Simpsons. Uh, the bit is that he's, like, chained to the stage, and he leans over and asks Marge to get him a hacksaw. Uh-huh. Um, like, during the ending credits. And I was like, oh, they got somebody to do, like, Tom Jones's like, speaking voice yeah. or something. And I was like, oh, no, that was him. Like, because the accent sounded so different than his singing voice. Because mm-hmm. he wanted to sing in an American thing to sell sell better, you know? Yeah. Apparently, uh, I, there's no recordings of this, but apocryphally, Kurt Cobain, music featured in this film, used to sing in a British accent when the band started because that's what he thought punk sounded like. Yeah. Uh, and then he was like, oh, no. So then um, Ozzy Osbourne apparently does a voice in this movie, which I did not catch, and is weird as fuck. Because uh, at one point they're drinking absinthe and they see the Green Fairy, and apparently the Green Fairy is Kylie Minogue, you know. Visually. Yeah, and she's like, <laughs> everybody, let's fucking rock and roll. I don't, I don't know what she says. But apparently some of her dialogue is voiced by Ozzy Osbourne. And I was like, that's not what Ozzy sounds like. I know what Ozzy sounds like. For it to be Ozzy, I mean, unless they pitch shifted it or she did a voice that I don't remember or something. But, like, the Green Fairy should have come out and been like, Hey, man, it's time to rock and roll. All right, go, on, go ahead, rock and roll. And then they should have been like, yeah, rock and roll, Green Fairies, but I can't hear you, man. <laughs> Which is, I've heard Ozzy Osbourne say, I can't hear you, man, in that exact cadence like 14 times. It's great. And every time, because I love him, I would yell, it's because you've been standing in front of giant amplifiers for 70 years, Ozzy, I love you. I saw both Ozzy and one of the Black Sabbath reunions uh, at like Ozfest. And they were always great. And he gets on stage. He's like, And you're like, I have no idea what the fuck you just said. And then the song starts and he's like, Well, fairies wear boots and you gotta believe me. And I was like, those are two different voices coming out of that man. And then I found out that you use different parts of your brain for talking and for singing. Yeah. And I was like, oh, he didn't damage one part. He clearly has damaged the other one. 
totally fine. It makes sense now. Mm-hmm. I was very confused. Yeah. Ozzy rules. I love Ozzy. I don't think he was in this film. <laughs> Disbelieve, but... May contain Ozzy Osbourne. Yeah. Packaged in a similar facility <laughs> that also packages Ozzy Osbourne. Osbourne. May contain trace amounts of Ozzy Osbourne. Hey, man! <laughs> Gives me something to Photoshop later. Yeah. Um, so they put on the, the Bollywood uh, show, and it all comes to a head. Um, the uh, narcoleptic... Argentinian passes out again. Ewan McGregor now, since we've established that he's the same size as him because yeah, he, he put on his a, costume earlier. He has a coat of opportunity. Yeah, he puts on his uh, puts on his costume, comes out. Everybody freezes because none of them, I guess, even despite being performers like born and bred, are good at improv. Except for Harold, who's like, ah, oh, despite him putting on a costume, I can tell that it is he. Well, he's he the, has shaved his mustache. Yeah, yeah the whole thing. He's put on a disguise. It's, that's what yeah. I just said. Yeah, okay. He's like, right. It is he, the, the piss-poor sitar player from earlier. And he's like looking at this, this crowd like, you get it, right? And they're like, and they're oh! All doing, oh, <laughs> yeah! yeah. <laughs> Which I actually liked. I was like, that's yeah. funny. And yeah. I kind of hope they roll with this, and I kind of hope they were going to do a I'll confess to you in the, you know, manner of the show, but Hugh McGregor's just like, you know, I, he calls her a whore. He throws money at her. Real romantic, good stuff. And then um, he storms oh, out, and then she she decides it's none of it's worth it uh, without him. So then she she you know she starts right the, before there she was going to leave with him and and like were, you know fuck everything. Yeah, and they were gonna run away. Ziegler's like you can't do that because the Duke has the deed to the uh, Moulin Rouge whole place, Moulin Rouge, and you're dying anyway. By the way, and she's like, what? <laughs> He's like, yep. He's like, yeah, you know those handkerchiefs yeah. you're always coughing yeah. blood into? That's not normal. Yeah. You don't see anyone else doing that. I've yeah. never done that. Yeah, you're definitely dying. And then also he's going to kill your boyfriend if you, you know, abscond with him. Yeah, yeah. So, like, really, you're so not going to win this. She's going to break so, up with you yeah. and to save him and save the place and all this. And it's yeah. all whatever. And he doesn't uh, know about any all of that. that. Right, she's of just like, she's I'm like, leaving you because he's rich. Right. Because right. Harold tells her to be an actress right. and, you know, make yeah. him think that you don't love him. Right. And so then he's like, well, I'll insult her uh, in front of everybody. So he does. And then he's leaving and she's, she decides like, well, I'll just fucking. Well, he was starting to do it backstage and then, you know, right, but, things... but she could have just let his ass leave. That's what she wanted. Yeah. That's what she wanted. Like, I mean, she didn't really want it, but that's what she was willing to do. Right. But then she decides like, ah, fuck it. I don't care if he has the deed. I don't care if he murders you and McGregor. I'll just tell you McGregor. I love him. And then they have a reprise of like, well, I love you until the end of time. And. Then there's a whole bunch of Mishagas with the gun where everybody's got the gun and then they keep dropping it and it keeps flying through the air and bouncing off tambourines and shit and bouncing over here and sliding along yeah. the floor exploding and exploding some sodium lights for a nice big poof. Yeah, and getting kicked by this guy and somebody fucking shakes out a little fucking handkerchief and that flops it up here. Like it's just bounce it's like ridiculous. Mm-hmm. And um nobody gets killed. <laughs> Yeah. And then the gun goes out the window and it hits the Eiffel Tower and yeah, everybody I mean, loves that's, that. That's kind of the part that, like, <laughs> I have a problem with. Well, is that it's really hard to tell where people are in the room and where the gun is in relation to anybody else. Yeah. And then also, yeah, nobody gets shot and it's, you know, violating the, the rule. It's the Chekhov's gun rule where if you show somebody a gun, somebody's getting shot with that gun. Yo, Chekhov would have fucking seen, Chekhov would have watched half of this thing and thrown up. But, like, I'm talking about Anton Chekhov from Star Trek. Uh-huh. I'm very overstimulated. 
<laughs> I can't take much more of this, Captain. <laughs> is his name Anton Chekhov, or are you mashing together Anton Yelchin? I thought it was. I thought it was Anton Chekhov. Oh, okay. I don't know. It might not be. Oh, it's Pavel. Pavel, Pavel Chekhov. Chekhov. Okay. It's still a good gag. Sure. Yeah, I don't know. Well, it also like we know we know she died and she's been coughing blood in a handkerchief, so she's not gonna get shot. <laughs> like, are we supposed to think like, oh, you it's know, a fake out? That I mean, that might have been better. It might have been, but I would be just as angry with that. Like, well, then why the fuck were we? Why do we have nine <laughs> well, shots yeah. of her coughing blood yeah. in a handkerchief for just to get shot? Yeah, why does she have TB if she dies from a gunshot? Okay, yeah. I don't know. I don't know either. It's just uh, like, she might have made it if she wasn't so sick already. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like if that was the thing, yeah. if it was like they were running and the Duke is like crawling out from under like a pile of people who fell on him, and he crawls over the gun and he's like trying to take aim, and then like. He's going to fire and they're, they're trying to run out of the building. And then she like has a coughing fit and doesn't get through the door. And then she gets shot. That would actually be great. That would tie in both the gun and the stupid goddamn handkerchiefs. But that doesn't happen. Yeah. She just goes, I'm so glad we're in love. And then she fucking straight up pulls the last action hero. And she goes, I'm out of here. And then she dies. Yeah. Uh, you McGregor is like straight up like ugly crying. Yeah. He's, he goes for it, man. Yeah. Like, yeah, that's the thing is like. I don't think I've seen him give a bad performance. He usually is like really swinging for stuff and it works because he's inherently charming a lot of the time. He is. He's like, he's really got it. Yep. I mean, I think he's like appearance aside, he's a really great actor. Yes. He's very committed. Yep. Dangerously. So I think we've discussed on the podcast before that to play Renton in train spotting, he, would eat uh, like a, a baked, baked potato, potato and then run, I don't know, five miles or some shit every day and then eat another baked potato and then go to bed. And that was his, that was his life in prep for this because he was like, I have to look like a heroin addict. But turns, turns out, out being heroin skinny um, is bad for you. You know, if you're if it's not coming to you naturally, he was like super vitamin deficient and had to take vitamin supplements like into the 2000s, like 2010s. I think right before or maybe like right after that one uh, miniseries thing of like him on a motorcycle, like he and his buddy motorcycled around a couple different places on the earth was when I read an article that was like, oh, he finally just stopped taking vitamin supplements like his body's okay now. And it's like I was like, that was like 15 years. Yeah. Like, crazy, crazy shit. Yeah. So, you know, maybe don't do that. No, no, d- d- that whole no food tastes as good as being thin feels is like, that's a bunch of horse shit because your, your body needs vitamins yeah, and minerals and sometimes you can only get those from a Big Mac. I don't know. That's literally like, you know, one of the anorexic slogans. So, yes, don't listen to that. That no, is not a shit. good idea. Take it from me, the guy who ordered a bunch of Taco Bell before we recorded this. Yeah. It was great. I had a quesarito. Yeah, it was fun. It was delicious. Good time. So, um, yeah, she dies. The movie's over. And then at the end, after all the credits, it says, truth, beauty, freedom, and above all else, love. And it's like, yeah, I guess freedom. I guess Boz Lerman had a bunch of freedom on this film, but, like, somebody should have reined him in a little bit. While not very technically proficient, I still, I don't know, I it wasn't a movie that particularly offended me when I first watched it in my teens. I'm I'm moving towards the verdict, so I guess we're gonna you know talk about it. That's I mean for me it's it's a watch. It's probably not a great watch necessarily because yeah, there's there's definitely some visible seams on this thing and some things that don't quite line up together. But I didn't feel like it was as well. Again, it's it's a lot more um, kinetic 
and a lot of quick cuts and things that I had forgotten about. Um, it does have a couple of like again, legitimately good little sequences. Images. Yeah, and uh, then especially the like, the like a virgin is great. I think that whole the sequence like a virgin is, is great. extremely good. Um, Roxanne, I I like, but wish it was shot a little differently. Um, yeah. Any of the sequences where the theater is being built but hasn't yet been built are usually really nice because it's a lot of shadows that are super interesting and a lot of like playing with light in those yeah there, where... there, are, there is some genuinely good cinematography nice yeah. shots in some of this yeah but not enough of it and the ones that are there are really kind of, a lot of them are edited to shit yeah i mean most of the movie is like edited like montages and then musical numbers that are super edited and usually are juxtaposing the song with either backstage or away from stage or time passing or something and it's just like so much just so much information and it's not for me not delivered in a way that is fun to take in Mm -hmm. near the finale like he's he's thrown out of he's not allowed to come to the moulin rouge to profess his love to her so there's a shot of him pawning his um typewriter to buy a ticket yeah. And then I guess also the extra money is what he throws at her on stage. Yeah. And then yet afterwards, after she dies, he goes back to his apartment and he's sad writing on his typewriter. And I was yeah, like, yeah, he does okay. have it back with no explanation. Well, yeah, you were like, maybe he got paid for the show. And I was like, there's no way anybody got paid for this fucking show. You Imagine that it's opening <laughs> fucking night. You're in this theater. There's an act it break. It was very well received, though. There like were a the, lot of people. The curtain now, fell. And let me please finish of, my okay. thought. All right. Because two-thirds of the way through, your star leaves the stage. When he comes back, he's Ewan McGregor. He is playing. He looks totally different. He is obviously not even fully dressed. He's like the shirt's unbuttoned. He's not referencing the show at all. He calls the star a whore, throws money at her, then leaves through the audience, at which point a man with a gun appears there is actual chaos, and then the star dies of cholera, and you're going to tell me you don't get your money back? You think, holy shit, Barnum and Bailey knocked this one out of the fucking park. Like, what? Oh, Rodgers and Hammerstein really done did it this time. I believed every second of that. No, you're getting your money back. No one's getting paid for that. That is some Spider-Man turn-off-the-dark level fucking failure. They they closed the curtain and stuff, and there was applause, and they didn't see her die. I think they were afraid they would be murdered if they didn't applaud. <laughs> there was uh, an active a gun. A sign lit up that said applause or else. Yeah, there was an active shooter in their show. Yeah, all right. So, yeah, you're a, you're a Parisian nobleman or, you know, some, somebody wants to go see this show and you're like... It's not noblemen. It's people that thought they were going to get their dick wet and then were like, oh, or I guess the theater's also fine. <laughs> there is one... Okay, there is a fun shot earlier. They do a musical number and it ends with people throwing their... It's like the big opening. Um, they The movie actually has an overture and then when they get to Moulin Rouge, it has an overture about Moulin Rouge, which I found obnoxious, but it ends with them throwing their... It ends with them throwing their hats in the air. And I the then the shot cuts to like across Paris, and you see the Moulin Rouge, and you see that tiny hats coming out, and they're not to scale, which is kind of funny. But I was like, oh, that's cute and funny and weird, and the movie doesn't have enough of that in it. Okay. It doesn't have enough like we like just weird choices that are interesting and different. Also, I mean that shot was on screen for like thirty whole seconds, so it felt like a lifetime. Mm-hmm. I was born and died during that thirty second shot of hats coming out of a tiny background thing. Yep. Yeah. I don't know. So, uh, we're voting. It's a decent watch from me, and you hated it. <laughs> it is a hey watch. I, I, I mean, it's, you know, it's not as poorly made as other things we've watched, but it was not fun at all for me because it's just kind of. 
It's it's overstimulating. It's tiring. Yeah, I guess for you, at best, it did ideas that are kind of cool poorly, and at worst, it did some things that actively graded on you. Yeah, it's, I think it was a very aggravating watch for me. Uh, if you are looking for a recommendation from me, uh, I would say, you know what's a, a Ewan McGregor musical that's great? It's Down With Love. Seek out Down With Love. It's adorable. He also says love in it a lot. It's basically the same movie, except this one's good. I don't think that's true either. But. It's not, but the the <laughs> second part is where it's good. Okay. Uh, love with Lerman. <laughs> yeah, I, I legitimately like a couple of people's performances in this. It's a thing that, who, like... Who do you like? I uh, like the um, the narcoleptic Argentinian. Oh, yeah, that's um, Jacek Komen. Yeah, I, I liked his performance. I mean, it's way over the top. It's really crazy, yeah. but... That was the thing that worked for me because yeah. it fit the tone. Yeah. Like at one point he's like, what does he say? Like, I sing like an angel and I dance like the devil. He does. Like, it's great. Like, that's a fun line read. Yeah. And like, he really goes for it. Yeah. Um, hey, he's good. Uh, Jim Broadbent. Jim again, Broadbent, yes. Is really good. Uh, and uh, Richard Roberg is good. I... Okay, I know. You find his accent inconsistent. Um, I think. Yeah, there's, there's aspects of it that I think could have been better, but. Sure. Because um, he starts off and he just seems like a like, he's not committing to a character. I think or he's caricature, fun but to watch. Yeah. By the end of the movie, I liked him a lot because I think he, whether it was a choice to do it in story or it was like the a product of the production, but like later in the movie, he is more. He's a little more unhinged, almost. Yeah, he's a yeah. little more, like a little bigger, and mm-hmm. that fits the world more, and it also like is more fun to watch. Yeah. Than somebody like quietly restraining their feelings, which is like riveting in this context. <laughs> sure. It's like um, literally like John Leguizamo is 10 feet away from you walking on his knees doing God knows what accent. And you're like, I'm, I'm, I'm acting internally, but I'm keeping it all in. That's my process. And I'm like, you are not in the right movie, sir. <laughs> Save that shit for like an Elizabethan period drama. I love John Leguizamo. And I do. This is terrible. He's bad in this. <laughs> he's bad in this. You should feel bad. If you want a better movie where John Leguizamo is short and stupid, he plays clown in the Spawn movie. And yeah. he can do that. He's doing a weird voice in that too, but at least it's consistent and better. I haven't seen the Spawn movie. It's not either. good, but it's better than this. Like a silly amount of time. <laughs> hey, Spawn! Yeah. And at the end they fight, I think, a screensaver from Windows 97. Oh, That's what hell looks like. It looks like a fucking Mortal Kombat level. It's terrible. Mm. Boo earns, but better than this, I think, probably. <laughs> it's not worse. It might be the same. Okay. <laughs> All right, so I'm so sorry that no, no, it's okay. I mean, like, I I went into this hoping I would like it, and it just didn't work for me. Okay. Um. Yeah, I mean, you know, I don't, I don't think I ever really watched this with the aim of critiquing it, and I think a lot of my watches maybe have been like, it's on while I'm very tired or hungover. (laughs) Yeah, and it's just pure candy kind of. Yeah. And sure. Yeah. But it's I get it. I'm not you know. Mm I'm glad, I'm glad you like it. I, I'm happy to own it uh, for you mm-hmm. so that you can watch it while I am not here. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I, it's it's fine. Um, but yeah, it is definitely not for me. It does not work for me at all. Mm-hmm. Um, well, thank you for putting up with me bashing this movie that you like. I'm sorry. Yeah, I am genuinely sorry. I feel fine. like an ass now. Well, no. Again, some things are fair and some things are things that like... Like I said, while they don't bother me, I can see why they would bother you more because it's it's not something that I tend to pick up on. Or if I do, it's not something that 
irks me like it seems to irk you. Yeah. And there's definitely been um, times where we've watched something, I've gotten stuck on something and just couldn't get over it. Yeah, she we watched the Transformers uh, anime movie from the 80s and she was like, so they're cars? And I was like, yeah, they're car- they turn into robots. And she was like, uh-huh. And then 20 minutes later, she's like, but that one's a truck? This didn't happen. <laughs> this didn't even happen a little bit. No, we've never even watched that movie. That might be a movie that I, having not seen it now in like going on like 15 years, I could probably quote the whole thing cover to cover. You got the touch. You got the power. I do remember that being a good song. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. After all is said and done. You never walk. You never run. You're a car. You're a car now. <laughs> hey, that guy, he is a jet. Has anybody been a skateboard yet? Oh, Transformers. That's a good... It's not. Anyway. That's decent writing. This has been our, uh, this been our Moulin Rouge episode, I guess. <laughs> Thanks for uh, doing this with me. Thanks for putting up with me all the time, yeah. but especially this. Of course. Uh, thanks for doing Love with Lerman. Yeah. You can email us uh, questions, critiques, uh, corrections, and omissions, all that sort of stuff at Write, Hate, Watch, Great Watch. That's W R I T E H W G W at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at HWGW Podcast on both of those platforms. You can find us every other Wednesday. That's every, every other Wednesday. I didn't know you were going to do that. Find us every other Wednesday. That's every, every other, other Wednesday. Wednesday. <laughs> MovieJohn.com. And you can subscribe to the MovieJohn Patreon at patreon.com slash MovieJohn, J-A-W-N. The most recent thing as of this recording was um, end of the year lists a uh, little hand cut zine physical zine went out um that had new to me lists from a lot of um movie john contributors yeah contributors including me including hunter and a little postcard of uh frankenstein building a snowman that was painted by me yeah so if you got, got that your grubby little hands all over that didn't you if uh yeah if you if you if you got if you're a contributor at the at, you know if you were a contributor in december and you got that um i painted that you're welcome hope you liked it so you can contribute there, you can subscribe there. And uh, thanks for thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening. Yeah. And um, is there a goodbye song? Is there a song that's like... Na, 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 na. Na, 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 na. na. Hey, 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 hey. Goodbye. Twatch, gray twatch. Yeah. <laughs> All right, bye. <laughs> bye. I knew that Brad that- and Fiona Dorf. <laughs>